1: Hey everybody, Eric Bischoff here, and have you heard about Strictly Business? Strictly Business is a brand new weekly series exclusively on adfreeshows.com. Join me and my co-host John Elba every Tuesday as we take a deep dive into the business of the professional wrestling business, and this is some straight up business talk here. No fanboy nonsense. We discuss television contracts, advertising, licensing, and, of course, the highly debated ratings. So if you want an unfiltered, brutally honest, anti-fanboy understanding of the professional wrestling industry, well, Strictly Business is the series for you. And hey, if Elon Musk likes my tweets, and he did, you're going to love Strictly Business. Sign up now. And listen at adfreeshows.com.
0: Get the house you want with the payment you want at buywithconrad.com. And you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this at buywithconrad.com. MLS number 65084, equal housing lender. The first step to buying a house is buywithconrad.com.
2: Is going on, everyone? It's time for another edition of 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. I, of course, am John Alba, filling in for the big man, my boss, Conrad Thompson, this week. But I am not the star of this show. Instead, I'm joined by my co-host of Strictly Business on adfreeshows.com. He is very festive for this holiday edition of 83 Weeks. Mr. Eric Bischoff. Oh, boy. That. That is that is that's is festive and patriotic my friend. What's going on?
1: Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early light. I just I'm just feeling so 4th of July-ish. It just it's my f- one of, it's not my favorite. Like Thanksgiving I think is my favorite for some reason, but I really really like
2: 4th of July a lot.
1: It's a toss-up. But I'm excited. It's my wife's birthday, 4th of oh. July. I've, Happy
2: birthday there. to Mrs. B. Yep. Any special yep. plans?
1: No, we're just uh cooking on the rec tech. I am I have been cooking my ass off on my rectech girl. Um what did I, I started out? I made smoked chicken chili. So I smoked my chicken on the Rectech, tech and then we mixed it into white bean. Smoke smoked white bean chicken chili. It's just freaking awesome. Just awesome. I I made steaks and uh, pork chops and what else did I make? Oh, and I grilled sausages, but yeah, I've been, I've been grilling my ass off and I love my rectangle.
2: Are you a direct heat, quick cook with your steaks or are you a reverse sear guy?
1: I'm a reverse sear guy. I've done it it both ways. Um, I prefer a reverse sear. Just because I like the challenge and timing is everything. You know, they say timing is everything in it's life. True. Well, it's really, really true when it comes to cooking on a grill. So I'm pretty, um, I'm obsessed with making things perfect and the RecTech lets me do it. I've got a really cool internal meat thermometer in addition to the one that comes with my Rectec um, that just allows me to be so precise in my cooking that it's it's more fun for me to do something a little more complex.
2: Well, I can promise you this. You like to make sure that your food is perfect. One thing that wasn't perfect was WCW in 1999, Eric. And we're going to find that out here today. As wait we- a minute, wait
1: a minute, wait a minute. I thought, <laughs> what happened in 97? Where did fucking 98 go? We're talking. Conrad Kevin disappears and we go right from 97, which was nothing but beauty. Alba shows up and we're jumping into 99 because it sucks. <laughs>
2: Well, you and I have a lot of fun busting each other's balls on Strictly Business, so I thought, why not do that here on this week's edition of 83 Weeks as we talk Kevin Nash in the year 1999. And Eric, it's a big year right now for Kevin Nash, as a matter of fact, because on July 9th, he'll be celebrating his 63rd birthday. And I don't know if you've heard this, but starting on July 11th, Click This debuts on Podcast Heat with Sean Oliver Man, I could listen to Kevin Nash tell stories all day, and now we're going to get a chance to. They've got great chemistry we know already. Why do you think Kevin Nash will be perfect for a podcast? Because I know you share that sentiment with me.
1: Um, well, for one of the reasons that you mentioned right off the bat is he's a great storyteller. You know some I'm not a great storyteller. I don't have great stories to tell. I, I didn't live on the road. I didn't travel. you know, I wasn't a part of that aspect of our business or the business, it's not ours anymore, because I'm not in it. But you know what I mean, I, I wasn't a part of that dynamic and that life on the road. So as a result, you know, my stories all tend to be like arguments with, you know, head of finance, which is not really compelling shit, right. But Kevin and and guys like him um, that did, and then a small handful of them. Mick Foley, I think is at the top, you know, I don't think there's a better storyteller in our our industry, meaning the podcast industry, then Mick Foley, but Kevin Nash is right there. So he not only has a wealth of material and a very, very unique perspective, he is a phenomenal storyteller. And I think one of the other reasons that I'm looking forward to hearing from Kevin is he he doesn't pull any punches. um, And he's he just has so much material to work with that's the best way to say it he's straightforward he doesn't pull any punches i do you know i've i've had occasions where i've heard him recall stories and i'm going wait a minute i was there and and every time i allow myself to start thinking that way i realize that and i've talked about this before with conrad um and bully recently you know in the case of Bully, we were both discussing something about Aces and Aids or something. And and we we're both part of the same meeting and standing in the same place. But Bully's perspective is different than mine. Of course it is. He's hearing and looking at things through his eyes. I'm hearing and looking at things through my eyes and in, in my ears. And it's just different. And I think Kevin's unique perspective is going to be really different. And uh, the other thing I, I'm excited about is we don't hear a lot from Kevin. He's done a million shoot interviews. He's done interviews. But in a long form, we haven't heard that. And I think that's going to be really compelling stuff.
2: He also has worn so many hats over the course of his career, and that is something we're going to really dive into here on 83 Weeks on this edition. And again, that's July 11th. Click this. Go check that out. Sean Oliver and Kevin Nash are going to tear it down. But let's get started here, Eric. And I think we have to start with the end of 98. We know Kevin Nash ends Goldberg's. Winning streak, the undefeated streak. He becomes WCW world champion for the first time. And then eight days later, January 4th, 1999, we're setting the stage for the shit show that is going to be WCW in 1999. And that's where Hollywood Hogan returns after a few months off. And well, the finger poke of doom happens. This has been covered ad nauseum, including on our own podcast here in the archives. But After having some time to marinate, how do you feel about the finger poke of doom looking back? Have your thoughts changed at all since you and Conrad talked about it many years ago?
1: No. No. Look, it was what it was. Admittedly, the wheels have been, they started slowly falling off creative as well as every other department within WCW. Um, And I've talked about that and I've talked about the reasons why. So I'm not going to go into it here, but by January of 99, you know, we just, we just weren't producing our best creative. There's no question about it. We were reacting instead of acting. Um, the, the focus, the the vision was no longer as clear as it had been in 96 and even in 95, you know, the, with the launch of Nitro, there was a vision for Nitro that made Nitro the success it was because it was so much different than what people were used to seeing. And by 1999 though the the the, that vision became real murky and as a result when you don't have a plan when you don't it's no different man you jump in your car and you just start driving and you don't know where you're going or you haven't made up your mind where you want to go you're going to waste a lot of time you're going to burn a lot of gas you're going to frustrate yourself whatever and that's kind of what creative was like at that time so you know for me to look back at it and Overanalyze it, reanalyze it, try to justify it, try to explain it. I, I just don't. It was what it was, and unless you were there, and you were in the offices, and you, you were part of what caused all of that. A wrestling fan or a viewer, a dirt sheet writer or reader, whatever, is just never going to get it. And if you, if you weren't there, if you weren't in the trenches, you just will never understand. And you'll do the knee jerk, fanboy, dirt sheet culture. Oh man, I can't believe that booking sucked. Well, dude, you know, get off your chair and, and go get a job and, and try to get a job <laughs> writing wrestling and be involved in that creative process. And then once you do, and you've done it for, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, come back and talk to me about what you would have done differently. If you were in that moment, not in an armchair, not, you know, sitting around a room, not sitting on your little keyboard, you know, chatting with your geeky dirt cheat friends. Um, Talk to me after you've tried to do it for a while at a high level.
0: This segment of 83 weeks is brought to you by Zen Nicotine Pouches, the simpler way to experience nicotine satisfaction and enjoy lasting change on your terms. Zen Nicotine Pouches are a fresher, simpler way to enjoy nicotine that's helped millions of people achieve lasting change by offering smoke-free and spit-free satisfaction. I don't know about you, man. But there's been times in
1: my life where I needed to make a change. Mrs. B reminds me of that all the time. And whether it's diet and exercise or just the way you go through life and show up every day, sometimes you just, you know, you need to make a change, but you're not quite ready. Right? I mean, and I'm sure a lot of smokers and dippers out there, they could relate. You know, you got to make that change, but it's got to be the right timing and you need the right help. And Zen understands there isn't one right time to make a change for everyone. Everybody's timeline is a little bit different. Everybody's on their own
0: journey. That's right. So whenever you feel like you're ready to take the first step towards change, Zen will be there for you with the right strength, the right flavor at the right time. And if you're thinking about making a change and want to learn more today, check out Zen nicotine pouches at zen.com. That's zy Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Looking for a great Mother's Day or Father's Day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You say Paint Your Life transforms your photos into a one-of-a-kind, beautiful hand-painted portrait created by professional artists. You upload anything you can imagine. You can even combine photos. You'll pick the artist, the medium, you can even customize the frame. And you can receive your painting in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at PaintYourLife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money's refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word WEEKS to 87204. That's WEEKS to 87204. Text WEEKS to 87204. Paint Your Life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Well, I want to ask
2: you this then because I think this is kind of a table setter for this episode and will help give us some perspective in the contrast of what you were doing at this time and what Kevin was doing at the time. What was your mindset, your mental psyche, entering the year nineteen ninety nine? Was there any burnout from you? It sounds like it was a lot of chaos around you because your devotion, after all this time, put into making WCW such a machine that it ultimately became. I have to imagine there's some physical and mental burnout in some capacity for you
0: there. You
1: no, know, really. You know when you when when I when people in general when one uses the term burnout burned out you immediately think physically and mentally physically i was fine i i was in great shape i had no physical i wasn't fatigued it wasn't the work wasn't too hard i wasn't putting in too many hours none of that from a physical perspective i was more than fine um mentally though i still had a lot of gas so when i say burned out it's not because i didn't have the mental energy or desire it's the level of frustration and almost daily confrontation with senior management at Turner time Warner. And it it was despite what the dirt sheet universe chooses to believe um, it was corporate driven. It was takeover driven. It was merger driven. There was so much infighting within Turner broadcasting Because every department, every division of Turner was going to be affected by this merger. Some some of those were affected in a positive way. Some of those divisions, like WCW, weren't. And WCW in particular got really targeted, I think, because there were so many senior executives during that merger period that just didn't want wrestling and now now they had their excuse. And when they started moving budgets around and changing financial goals and um, generally restructuring WCW the way they wanted it restructured, the handwriting was on the wall. So I was burnt out, but not because of fatigue or energy. Just I was burnt out with the frustration of fighting every single day internally, not externally wasn't the wrestling business. It was the merger business that was driving me fucking nuts.
2: And workplace culture certainly has an effect on anyone realistically, mentally. So I don't think that's something that is uncustomary to feel by any stretch of the imagination. But there's a lot of moving parts at this time within the product itself, too. Uh, Kevin Nash is actually the last one to face the giant before he set it up to New York. And then around the same time, he's given the job as head booker. And when that news gets out, there's a lot of fantasy land there from fans saying, oh, of course, Kevin Nash is going to put himself over everyone. But we see a little bit of a different play out here. Why was Kevin Nash, in your opinion, the right guy for the job at that moment in time?
1: Because he was my friend. And I trusted him. And he was willing to do it. You know, Kevin and I have a weird, not weird, a, a very unique Relationship. We don't stay in touch. I don't, you know, I'll call Kevin or text Kevin once or twice a year. We'll see each other on the road at conventions or events or whatever, WWE functions occasionally. And we're very good friends, but we're not the type of friends that do a lot of chatting. We don't stay in touch. But one of the reasons is Kevin is one of those guys. I just know, and maybe it's because he's from Detroit. I know that sounds crazy and I'm from Detroit, but there's a certain When you grow up where Kevin and I did, you learn who to trust pretty quickly. And Kevin's just one of those people that I inherently trust. And we were close enough at that time when Kevin came to me and he saw me, he knew what he knew what I was going through and I shared some of it with him. And I remember we had, he was in my office one day and I was I was probably blowing off a ton of steam, probably said things I shouldn't have said about what was going on because some of it was very confidential with regard to finances and things like that. But I did. I just, I had it. And I remember somewhere in the middle of that conversation, it. and I don't know if it was my idea or his idea, or if we both arrived at the same time, Kevin might have a better recollection of it, but it was just like, dude, let me take this from you. Let me pitch in. Let me take some of that pressure off of you. And it was sincere. There was no, it wasn't a power play. Kevin didn't want that job. Kevin knew what was going to happen the minute he took that responsibility. Kevin knew the kind of reaction he was going to get from people that didn't really know him well. He certainly knew the kind of, you know, reaction that the melters of the world and the dirt sheet want to be, you know, people that want to be in the business but never could be. He, he knew what their reaction was going to be. And who would want that? Who would want the additional race responsibility? I didn't even pay him any more money, I don't think. It, it's just, it was him helping out a friend. And I trusted him. Did I think he was going to be, you know, the best booker in the world? Or, wow, I found my lightning in the bottle. No. Did I think he could do a great job? Did I think he commanded the respect, because he is Kevin Nash, of, of the majority? of of the the roster sure i did and that's at that time that's what we needed
2: i guess i just wonder when i hear you lay it out that way and and it sounds very genuine that it was a guy trying to be a good friend being the head booker for a territory is hard let alone being the head booker for the number 2 biggest promotion in the world at the time
1: number that's
2: 1 like, so Were we number I, 1 i Beginning of 99, you guys probably were. I don't I don't have the financial number in front of me there. But right. I just want to be clear. I want
1: to be accurate when we can be. It's not That's like true. I'm patting myself on the back. I blew my shoulder out two weeks ago doing that. So or
2: did you <laughs> <laughs> okay? Well, by the end of the year, you'll be number two. We'll get into that. But I I the point, <laughs> the point is here that. This is a significant decision that is going to alter the course of w c w programming for the rest of the year. It's not a decision that can just be made arbitrarily. What about his knowledge about wrestling and his mind for the business gave you the confidence that he could execute this job and, and as you said, the expectations that come from your peers as well in the process
1: well first off, you know Kevin taking over creative um Wasn't necessarily I wasn't concerned about changing the course of WCW's creative for the following year. It was a temporary situation. It was never discussed. You know, Kevin and I never talked about him stepping into that role permanently. It was really just to lighten up the load until things till the smoke cleared and I was able to focus more on creative. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't designed to be for the rest of the year, number one. And in terms of what was it? Um, look, by this time I had worked with Kevin for quite a while, three years under our belts. I mean, we were, we were good friends, but we also spent a lot of time talking about not only what we were doing, what we had done the previous week or the previous pay-per-view or whatever, but talking, you know, we've talked just in generalities, um, about where things could go. And I like Kevin's take on wrestling. I, I I liked his psychology. That's what I think. That's what I meant to say. I liked his psychology. He and Scott Hall both had this very, you know, they could they could lay out a story or someone else could lay out an angle for them that they're all excited about. And and Kevin has the unique ability to break it down, break down the elements of that story or the the beats or the moments within a story, if it was a two or three or four month program. And he could hear it, and then he could digest it, and then regurgitate it, if you will, but with his take on it, and mostly his take was about what's believable, what's the audience going to react to, does it make sense? Is it logical? And I know people sitting back listening to this right now or watching us on ampreeshows.com, some of them their hair is starting to catch on fire right now because the first thing that you up but how logical was it for a finger you in? If you were there and you were in that moment, <clears throat> you might understand it. And whether that idea or not, or whether that idea was a great idea or not, clearly, you know, I, I think the consensus is in on that one. But When Kevin would lay out an angle or a story, there was always a sense of believability and logic to it. Maybe not in that particular moment, but as a part of the longer-term story. And that's what I liked about Kevin. I I liked his psychology. I liked the way he would break down a story or a character or moments within a match. Look, the NWO, I've talked about it. Again, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back. But it was a pretty significant story and angle and still is, I guess, still to this so. day.
2: Certainly so. But part,
1: but And I, I've talked to Conrad about this a lot and in other interviews. The idea, the basic framework for the idea absolutely was mine and mine alone. And but once it's once you started seeing it play out on television, beginning with Scott Hall and then in the following week, that basic sketch of an idea that I had started really changing and morphing in a very positive way. And it was a collaborative effort. Once Scott Hall started, once he understood where we're going and what we're doing, because when he first came down the stairs on May 26th, 19 or May 27th, it was my birthday, 1996.
2: You know that date
1: <laughs> Scott, Scott Hall didn't know where this was going. Scott Hall Hall had no idea what I was thinking with regard to the NWO beyond what he had to do that particular day, because I hadn't developed that relationship with Scott. And then Kevin came in and it was similar in the very beginning when Scott and Kevin were both there. And even after the Hogan turn um, that's when Kevin and Scott really started giving the NWO its character it's vibe, it's brand. And a lot of that had to do with Scott. A lot of that had to do with Kevin Hogan to a, to a, to a degree. Um, And even I've never talked about this before, but Conan, even though he wasn't a part of the NWO, he and Scott and Kevin were tight Conan really had his finger on the pulse of pop culture and he was legit, he was real. He wasn't a, he wasn't pretending to be something he wasn't and as as a result of, you know, Conan's relationship with Scott and Kevin and those guys talking a lot of Conan's vibe started finding itself in NWO, in some of the promos and the way the guy's dressed, you know, the headbands, whatever, all of those things combined. And all of them, you know, individually, they're all kind of little things, but when you added them all up, you, what you had was the NWO with a real personality beyond the three individuals involved. And Kevin had a lot to do with that. So from a creative perspective, having worked with him in that regard and seeing what Kevin contributed to one of the most successful storylines in the history of the industry. We know that now. We didn't know that then, but we knew it was successful. And knowing how much input that that Kevin had on it, it, it made it pretty easy for me to have confidence in Kevin.
2: Well, you just mentioned psychology and storytelling. You just mentioned Conan. Let's put all that together here because in the beginning of February, Conan and Rey Mysterio challenged Kevin Nash and Lex Luger to a match at Super Brawl where Ray would be unmasked if his team lost. Now, that's a traditional babyface trope where the heels beat down the babyfaces, they go after the guy with the mask, they make him put it on the line. That That's traditional pro wrestling storytelling. But that's not how this story plays out because it's actually Ray and Conan calling out Kevin Nash and Lex Luger and Ray saying he'll put his... Mask on the line, despite never having ever gotten anything up on Kevin Nash in the first place. And to me, if I'm breaking this story down, that seems almost backwards to everything we know from a pro wrestling storytelling standpoint. We know that this is only gonna work if in in theory, behind building a baby face, if that small baby face slays the giant, and that's not where we're headed here. So what do you think of that ideology when it comes to booking? Because it came under criticism from a lot of fans and a lot of sheets at the time, and I'm curious how you feel about that.
1: Okay, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to rewind on that just a little bit. Sure. So, I, I, I get the stakes. Who challenged to Ray challenged Conan and uh, Ray
2: challenged Lex Luger and Kevin Nash.
1: Okay, and who actually cut the promo? Who laid the challenge down?
2: The challenge was cut by Ray Mysterio and Conan.
1: Okay and your your issue with that is well that's not normally the way things happen because
2: more so because a baby face like Rey Mysterio small guy big lucha a history the mask means everything it's super important it would be more meaningful in my opinion that he would have his back in the corner where he has to overcome a hurdle I don't understand why out of nowhere with no real context or no real reason that he would put this sacred mask on the line. Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah, sure. It makes sense. And I'm not trying to justify. It was probably most of it came from Kevin and or Conan and Ray. And I wasn't inside of their heads or part of their discussion. So it's stupid for me to comment on what they may have been thinking. But, you know, I'm, I'm, kind of visualizing the situation as you laid out with Ray, Ray's kind of on fire, right? Ray's wanting to become more than just a cruiserweight guy, which is, which is why he's now in this situation and story. He's now in that main eventer kind of spot. Um, what's wrong with the underdog saying, fuck it. I want you and I'll put what's most important to me on the line for my chance to get at you. I don't care how big you are.
2: There's nothing wrong with that. If they actually slay the giant, because how do you build a baby face? Then if they say, I'm not afraid, I'll put the most meaningful thing on my line uh, of my life on the line against you. And then they lose. How did he lose? Who lost? First of all, who lost? Well, we'll get into that. We'll get into that in, in a couple minutes, but to me, there's just an ass backwardsness about that, that, in a time period where WCW desperately needs to start making some new babyface stars. And Ray Mysterio is a guy that fans feel with Conan's a guy who's over. It, it just seems naturally that you wouldn't want to back your baby faces into a corner like that.
1: Yeah. And I guess we'll, we'll have to, we'll, we'll let's talk about it when the time is right. And we'll talk about that finish, but look, I, I, it always comes down to, and it was really fun. Cause you and I had a chance to talk to uh, Dr. Carolyn Reinhardt on strictly business And we were getting into the conversation was about why the hell do people watch wrestling anyway? And and, uh, Carrie Lynn, Dr. Carrie, has done a tremendous amount of research, along with some other academics and professors from around the world, actually. And the one thing that really made me smile while we were talking to her is, you know, why? I mean, she first started researching wrestling because she wanted to know, why do people watch this? And then in the course of her research, she became a wrestling fan. And now knows more about what's going on uh, on a weekly basis in the on television and wrestling than than I certainly do. So, the one thing though that she said is why. You know what's the motivation, and and I, I I applied that question of why is why would Ray do that? That's kind of what we're saying. Why would Ray go so far, is to put something that meant so much to him on the line against a guy who, quite honestly, or two guys, quite honestly. We'll probably beat them. And we'll talk more about that when yes. the time comes, because I want to hear about the finish.
2: I just posed it because you, you just praised Kevin's psychology and storytelling. So we'll, we'll take a deeper dive into that. But before we do, we have to mention something that happened. This is a big change from Kevin in terms of the presentation of the WCW Nitro programming. And this excerpt here is taken from the famous Death of WCW book that you love so much. Oh, God. No.
1: no actually no no not on my show that book okay. is so much fucking garbage
2: well this is this is more something that you can comment on structurally then uh it said that on february 1st kevin nash called a meeting and announced there would be some programming changes notably towards a move more like a raw like program with more taped backstage vignettes and the next week we start to see more pre-tapes on nitro But what's noted is that only fans at home are going to see the pre-tapes and the announcers who had the monitors right in front of them were commanded to act as though they didn't see any of the stuff going on backstage. Do you have any recollections of that conscious decision made in changing the structure of Nitro with more pre-tapes?
1: Generally, yes. But let me ask you a question. Do you know at this point if Nitro was a three hour or a two hour show?
2: If we are talking February to February 1999, I think it's three hours. I'm going to double check on that right now.
1: All right. Well, let's just let's assume because I don't know. All right, and I guess I should, but I don't. So fuck it. I don't really
2: feel bad about it. Um, I can only guess. January 1998. It became three hours, so it's a three-hour program at that point. All right.
1: Here's here's my guess, and that's kind of what I suspected, which is why I asked the question. When you've got a three-hour show plus your pre-tapes and your commercials, it takes forever. It's a long show, and you end up losing the crowd to a degree. And the thought was, hey, if we can not shut down the show, not interrupt the flow with pre-tapes and backstage stuff and really tighten up the in-ring action for that live crowd will probably do a better job of keeping that crowd alive and engaged in everything that's going on for the entirety of the, the entirety of the show. Otherwise, those people that are there for a three-hour show, by the time they're into the main event, which is about 10:35, 1045, 10:50, whatever it is, it's almost 11 o'clock at night on the East Coast, right? but those fans that are in the arena have been there since probably six 30 or seven. So they've been sitting in those seats for four hours, many of them. And no matter how good the show is, you're, you're going to lose them. You just get fatigued. They've seen so much that by the time you get to your main event, that crowds kind of half ass beat. Right. And the idea was, shoot the pre tape separately, keep the flow of the show going for the live audience. The end product, as it gets to the, to the home, will be better for it. Did it work? I, I, I guess obviously not. One of the many things that didn't work in 99. But I'm guessing that that was the logic because that was a problem. How do you hold that live audience? That's one of the reasons that the Nitro Girls became a thing, trying to overcome that same challenge. How do you keep the audience's energy? Now, the Nitro Girls were for a different reason, but still, it's like we got to keep this audience engaged through the commercial breaks. We've got to keep them alive. How do you keep that energy up? And it was the Nitro Girls. Before the Nitro Girls, it was a DJ. DJ ran. He was playing music, going into breaks during the commercials for the audience, and then bumped us us back into the show. All of that was an example of trying to help manage the same challenge, but for different reasons.
2: My mentor, Ian Eagle in the industry, always told me that pre-production is production. The amount of work you put in beforehand will ultimately affect what your product looks like in presentation. And I I don't necessarily think it's a bad idea to do more pre-tapes. I think you can polish your show off a little more. But I understand where you're coming from with that careful balance. That that definitely is a tricky line to walk, especially after you you And
1: and you know what? On paper, it always looks like it makes sense, right? It's just so logical. For so many reasons, but the one intangible, this is this thing that you can't measure and you can't fix in post-production is the flow and the energy. And no matter how much pre-production you do and production on your pre-tapes, it doesn't feel the same on television. You're taking the audience out out of one moment and you're plugging them into another moment and the act of taking them out of one moment and pu- plugging them into another there's it's it's like physics right there's a loss of energy you know if 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 you know anything about electrical theory you know when you your power comes in on your your main power feed but if you have to go a mile and a half from where the main power comes into your property or you go 600 yards or whatever to to your house you lose a certain amount of electricity just in the line in the transmission and the same thing happens with pre-tapes no matter how well they're done that connection between that live energy what's going on in the ring and what's happening now in a pre-tape you lose a lot of energy it's the same thing
2: no doubt did about that be
1: discussing did you think we'd be discussing electrical theory here this morning
2: Eric Bischoff, whenever I hit record with you, I never know what's going to come out of your mouth.
1: Neither do I. That's why this is so fun. This is like fucking therapy for me. I have no idea what I'm going to say, even as I'm saying it sometimes. I get done like, oh, wow, that was really smart. Wow, that was really stupid. Or, that was funny. Oh, that was not funny. You know. but I don't know till it's over. So hang on, folks. It's going to be a ride.
2: Yes, it is. I'm
1: going to set all those hair on fire before this show's over.
2: Well, you know what? I'm so glad that you mentioned lighting my hair on fire because I'm not too concerned, Eric, because I've got our friends over at Keeps in our pocket, Eric, because Keeps is hooking 83 weeks up. Two out of three men will experience some form of hair loss by the time they are 35. But if you're watching Eric and I right now, you know that we are in good hands because hair is very important to us and our friends at keeps want to help you as well keeps offers a simple stress-free way to keep your hair ray mysterio might be losing his mask but he didn't need to lose his hair if he just had some help with keeps they've got convenient virtual doctor consultations and medications delivered straight to your door every three months and you don't even have to leave your home it's low cost the treatment's Start at just $10 per month, and they offer generic versions as well with discrete packaging and proven results. Eric, we know, both you and I deeply, intimately know the importance of having a good head of hair, and Keeps can help you keep just that, can't they? Look, I, I,
1: I wouldn't be where I am today if it weren't out for my hair. Hell yeah. I, I didn't get hired because I had a tremendous amount of talent. Vern Ghani didn't look at me and say, you know what? God doesn't know fuck all about wrestling. He's never done this before, but I think he's got this something special inside of him. No, Vern Gagne looked at me and said, wow, he's got a great head of hair. He looked good on TV. I had no talent. I had no skills, but I had a great head of hair. And my hair has served me well in every way for a long, long time. So at 67 years old, guess what I'm concerned with? My you hair. Gotta, you got to keep it. I, yes. I have a great head of hair. I'm proud of it. I talk about it. So do most of my fans, but now I have to keep that hair. So I love keeps for that reason. Only. I can't imagine life without my hair. Honestly, I'd be, I don't know what would happen.
2: It's very much
1: Who was it? Uh, it was it Samson when he got his hair all cut off. He just went to <laughs> shit. <laughs> I'm not going to throw
2: anybody under the bus, but i'm not going to take any heat on that one but what what did i say what what What's? i don't want to talk about anyone going to shit for losing their hair because quite frankly i'm more concerned about the five-star reviews that keeps is bringing in eric they've got more five-star reviews than any of their competitors and as they know prevention is it works treatments can take four to six months to see results so you can act Fast. And if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, go to keeps.com slash 83 weeks to receive your first month of treatment for free.
1: Look at this head of hair. I'm doing a close up here. If you're not watching,
2: look at that hair. You see it's any bald spots in there? There's great volume to it. Great volume, volume. superb volume. It's keeps.com slash 83 weeks to get your first month free keeps.com slash 83 weeks. This is award-winning hair here, Eric, and you know that I will do anything I can to ensure that it stays that way. So go check out our friends at keeps that one hit deeply personal. I'm I'm sorry. That's just very, uh, you know, good, you know, you know, Absolutely. Let's get back to Super Brawl here, February twenty first in Oakland, California. Scott Hall would actually substitute for Lex Luger here because Lex would need surgery to repair a torn left bicep. But guess what? Kevin Nash and Scott Hall defeat Rey Mysterio and Conan, and uh, the finish goes down this way. Eric Elizabeth distracts the ref, so Hall uses the Outsiders' Outsiders Edge on Mysterio, and he puts Nash on top of him for the pin. Ray Mysterio must unmask after that, so that
1: see here's here's why I don't have a problem with that idea conceptually. Now, is it different? Did it break the quote unquote you know booking paradigm that the Dirt Sheet universe would hold on to as a tool to kind of criticize something? Sure, sure, it was different, but I don't know. Here's a guy, a third of Kevin Nash's size or so literally, challenging the Giant, knowing good and well that he might lose the thing that was so important to him, and he does, but with heat. That's sympathy. If I'm a Ray Mysterio fan, I'm really pissed at Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. That's fucking unfair. That should have never happened. I love Ray Mysterio. I have Rey Mysterio masks. I have Rey Mysterio t-shirts. I have pictures of Rey all over the place. I'm a huge Rey Mysterio fan. Do I want to see Rey Mysterio beat Kevin S? Sure, I do. And I and I, and I think deep down inside, Ray believed he could. And then they have those evil, just dark, cheap shot and scumbag thugs in the NWO cheat. They have to beat a guy. A third of your size, I'm hot,
2: and now I'm really rooting for Ray Mysterio. So there. Well, Ray would actually defeat him the next night in two minutes and forty seconds. He see what but, did I just tell you. But he has lost his mask, though. Now, so what? He has lost the thing that makes. He's beaten the so giant. Him. He beat the giant. He overcame. Why couldn't he do that to keep the thing that was most special to him the night before, though? Because we needed heat
1: i you know again i wasn't an, I wasn't involved in laying the match out i'm I'm playing a role here and trying to argue the fact, but yes, it was different. it was a reversal of what you would normally do, but Ray was the little engine that could man people believed in Ray and for him to have the balls, and that's what that moment was it was a It was an inciting moment, right? That's what kicked this whole thing off, was Ray cutting that promo, and he had to have a huge set of balls to do it. He was no longer just that you know, uh, cruiserweight that could fly around and do amazing shit. Now he was a cruiserweight that could fly around and do amazing shit and have a big set of balls. I want to bet on that. And he got cheated out of a win, and that's heat. And then he did come back and win it. I don't know. You could argue it. Yes, it's different. But there's just more more than one way to do things. And every once in a while, you have to try to find a different way to do things. It's not so predictable.
2: I don't know. I just look back to Halloween Havoc 97. There's all these issues. Ray's going to lose the mask. No, he's not. No, we're going to agree to keep it. No, he's not. And now arbitrarily, we decide that he's going to lose his mask and he's just going to get his win back the next day and still lose it. I, I just don't understand the fluidity of that whatsoever, but I don't want to get caught up on this.
1: Well, it's not so much the fluidity of it either. Remember, and this is the part where people, you know, if they think about it just a little bit, they'll at least be somewhat open-minded to the logic, but we weren't selling a shit ton of Ray Mysterio merchandise. It had the potential and certainly WWE made that come to life in a massive way. Um, But in WCW, our licensing and merchandising hadn't caught up to 1995 or 1996 yet. Meaning the business had grown so fast and and licensing and merchandising, which was basically, it existed, but it was nascent. It was just kind of sitting there. Nothing was really happening. And so we didn't really have the pipeline, revenue pipeline for licensing and merchandising that WWE did. And the thought, one of my reasons for wanting to, to take the, the mask off Ray earlier was that I thought that Ray would become a bigger character because he is, number one, he's a great looking character. He's very photogenic especially as a baby face. How do you not love Ray Mysterio? You can see him walking down the street and smile. And you go, I love that guy. You don't even know him. I don't care. I love him anyway. He's got a great fucking smile. And that, those tattoos are awesome. That was Ray. Um, and my feeling was, yeah, the mask was important. I get it and all that. But being able to see Ray sell, seeing the pain in Ray's face, you know, selling is such an important part of all this. And when you've, somebody's got a mask on, you're losing a, you're losing a tool out of your toolbox in terms of emoting for the camera. So there was more than just one reason for it, I'm guessing. I get it. I don't like to guess though. I don't like no. I hate it. I'm just trying to make sense out of something that happened that I wasn't a part of and just try to imagine why did they make the decision they made?
2: Well, this is something I really want to dive into with you. Uh, from the March 1st Wrestling Observer, this is pretty interesting. Hart and Nash came out of a previous booking meeting with Heat, and Nash tried to get word out that Hart wasn't a team player. The bearing of Hart would have to be careful because Bischoff still wants to push Hogan versus Hart for Halloween Havoc, feeling he needs to get some value out of all the money he's paying Hart, while Nash doesn't want to push Hart, feeling he's not over. And apparently Bischoff truly understands so little about wrestling. That hard jobs for the likes of Booker T or Chris Benoit is believed to have no correlation to his ability to draw in a pay-per-view main event against Hogan. Now, uh, before I tee you up on that, I I do want to interject here, and I think that's unfair in saying that hard jobbing for the likes of Booker T or Chris Benoit is damaging his credibility because we're also trying to build stars, and Booker T is clearly someone WCW has big plans for. Yeah,
1: Yeah, because Booker T and Chris Benoit, they were just like such, you know... They were just low-level players, right? They didn't mean anything, according to Dave Meltzer. Here's here's the deal. You can expound on all this that so you want to and try to, you know, we can both try to understand what was going through Meltzer's mind, but it's real simple, John. Some stooge, I don't know who that stooge is or was, but some stooge was giving Dave Meltzer his perspective and point of use because that stooge knew that that would end up in Dave Meltzer's dirt sheet. Sure, And, it's a one-sided conversation.
2: And I don't, I don't agree with that assessment that he has there, by the way. But th- there is an interesting point to look into there. He talks about you wanting to get Hogan versus Hart for Halloween Havoc, which keep in mind is in October and we're in March here. W- was that ultimately the end goal that you were aiming for?
1: It certainly had been discussed, but I'd be lying to my audience and I, I, I just won't do that. You can disagree with me if you want but I don't lie. I have no fucking idea what we were going to plan for in October. That may have been a conversation, but by this time, by February, by March, April, May, things were so bad. We were hoping to be able to figure out things a week at a time, not months at a time. Now, was it, was it discussed? Probably. In fact, I bet on that. Was it a, Did we pin it up on a wall and say, okay, we're going to really try to get here? Maybe, probably, possibly. But to think that there was any kind of decisions being made in March and those decisions were being made with respect to what may or may not happen in October would be a complete lie. We were not working that far ahead.
2: That's pretty much what I figured here, especially with so many fluid changes going on. And around this time, it's reported that you've missed a few TV tapings. And I'm going to take this from The Observer as well. And it clearly sounds like information that was fed from someone, as you just mentioned. It says, quote, there are many in the company who think off devoting more time to non-wrestling activities may be him creating a safety net to save face and jump off if ratings start to fall. Those close to Nash claim he considers this like Vietnam. An unwinnable war because even though he's been given full say on most aspects of television, he has little say on the main angles which involve Hogan. That was an interesting little passage there. You trying to build a safety net to leave WCW in case ratings reach the point of no return. It seems like someone had something out for you. in re-link. That would be
1: Dave because there's no... And, and, and I mean, that's Meltzer. Look, Meltzer is a AEW fanboy. He loves AEW. And you can tell that by his coverage. He's lost all of his credibility. If he ever had any, anybody that's paying attention can see right through the fact that Dave Meltzer is AEW's social media mouthpiece. All right. And why? Because they pet him. They give him a cookie. They make him feel like, you know, He's part of the team. So he's going to bend over backwards and put them over in every way he possibly can completely avoid discussing the things that he would typically discuss. If it was somewhere where he wasn't being petted and getting free cookies. Um, if it was another promotion, he'd have an entirely different perspective on the, on the AEW product, but that it is what it is. My point is it was the exact opposite with WCW. I call, I've been calling Meltzer out for as long as I can fucking remember. What a fraud and what a piece of garbage he really is And, and the negative impact he's had on the industry overall for such a long time, as well as individuals in it, because some of the things that he said and lied about and misreported and was spoon fed bullshit that he ran out and repeated that impacted people's careers or lives or relationships. I, I called him out so no matter what we did Dave would go that extra mile especially if it involved me or hogan to to frame it and characterize it in a way that was really um in in Dave's mind probably demeaning me or shitting on me so to speak um but none of that was true that Dave made that up I' <laughs> to sit that i would to, to suggest that i would sit back and go okay things aren't really going so fucking good mm, i need a safety net how do i do that were you missing oh, i need TV? to set somebody up so that they can take the fall jesus christ i mean were you missing
2: tv me? to pursue other projects at no
1: No, I was missing TV to try to keep our business alive. Why do you think I wanted to hand the pencil off to Kevin Nash in the first place so that I had more time to attend to the issues that were right in front of me every single morning when I got to work that had to be attended to? That's why I brought Kevin in so that I did have time to do the things I needed to do as a president of a division of Turner Broadcasting in the middle of a merger. That's why it had nothing to do with a safety net. And I think that's more than anything, John, I think that's a real indication into what kind of person Dave Meltzer really is that he's projecting that kind of flaw or weakness or whatever Dave was trying to create in his narrative says a lot more about Dave Meltzer than it did about me. I was working my guts out just trying to keep WCW alive and from being digested as a result of this merger, because there were a a lot of people that had a lot more power than I did unplugging WCW at every single turn. And I had to fight that. That was my focus. So when I missed TV, I didn't even miss TV. I opted not to go to TV because I had shit to do. Safety net
2: you said that you have stuff to do. The only thing you're doing these days, Eric, is using that Rectech that you mentioned at the top of this show. It is a holiday weekend as we record this, and Rectech has got you taken care of for the 4th of July or any big occasions you may have. It's an amazing company that offers wood pellet grills fueled by all-natural hardwood pellets, along with other outdoor lifestyle products such as coolers, apparel, grill accessories, and more. And these grills, there's such a wide variety of them, Eric. They range in price from $399 to $3,000. And they got grills for every single lifestyle and every budget with a key focus on flavor, convenience, and versatility. Their factory direct pricing eliminates the middleman, and all grills ship absolutely free. Plus, all the pellet grills are made with high-quality stainless steel and are built to last a lifetime. Eric, I don't know about you. It's like 3 a.m. for me. I'm working on my next day shows. I hop on YouTube and I just look at all these people on YouTube, seeing how they smoke ribs, grill oh. steaks, and half the time it's all on the real tech. Please tell me more here about how the rec tech has got you taken care of, brother. I,
1: in every way. One of the things I love about my RecTech is the versatility. I, I mean, I can do anything. On that grill and not only is it versatile if I want to smoke something it, it does a great job if I want to smoke a turkey for example I, I like to smoke a turkey breast slice it up and that way I've got it you know throughout the rest of the week something healthy just to pull out of the refrigerator and eat it but i I love a good smoked turkey I do it on my rectag it's awesome if I want to get up in the morning and have bacon uh I don't I don't want to cook it in the house, especially in the summertime. You get the grease, you get the smoke, blah, 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 I'm cooking it on my Rectech. And it's awesome. And here's the thing I love about it. As much as anything, not only in terms of the product it can produce and the versatility of it, but I'm such a nerd for technology. Not advanced, but a nerd nonetheless. I <laughs> love a new gimmick when it comes out. And this is no gimmick, but I've got the Rectech app on my phone. Now, I can go into town, which I'm going to do after this podcast, and watch the Fourth of July parade. Okay, because it's just awesome. That's why I'm wearing my shirt, so I can be patriotic. You look great, but I know I do look good, don't I? It's the hair, thanks, keeps. (laughs) But I can be I can be in town, and I go okay. I want to preheat my grill to 225 degrees because I want to I want to smoke some whatever sausages or whatever. I can be at the parade 18 miles away, go on my app, turn on my grill, set my temperature to the degree so that it's ready ready and waiting for me when I get home. Or, on the other hand, I could be in town smoking something. I mean, I could be smoking something on the grill while I'm in town because I'm not going to go in town to smoke. Catch that? I get but it. I can look at I can look on my phone, go to my app and say, oh, the internal temperature of my turkey breast is approaching 150 degrees. I'm not going to get home in time to get it off and I don't want to oversmoke it and dry it out. So I'm just going to turn that temperature down or in some cases, I'll just turn it off. And it's waiting for me when I get there. How cool is that?
2: I bet you that 1999 Eric Bischoff, when he was missing all these nitros, wished he was at home with his rec tech, but thankfully you don't have to be put in any bad situations where you're away from your grill. You can get rec tech delivered right to you. It's time to toss that tasteless gas grill, messy charcoal grill, or even that overhyped brand name grill aside and join an elite wood pellet grilling family by focusing on flavor, convenience, and versatility. Rec tech sets the new standard in grilling. Visit rectech.com. That's R E C T E Q and use the code Bischoff to get 5% off site-wide. That's 5% off their top-notch wood pellet grills, one-of-a-kind, Rectech Icer Coolers, Chef-Tasted Rubs and Sauces, accessories, merchandise, anything 5% off. That's Rectech.com. And use the code Bischoff. Now I'm hungry. Let's keep going here. Kevin Nash is left on his own accords here as you're away and he has to wheel and deal with all the other guys in the locker room. And I would have to imagine that with the territory of being head Booker, he's almost like a player coach here, Eric, he has to go perform, but he also has to handle the troops. And with that, there's going to come maybe a little residual heat where you see guys like Scott Hall and Scott Steiner and Buck Bagwell and Hulk Hogan, his pals, getting pushed, getting TV time, and maybe less emphasis on guys like Billy Kidman or Hooventude. What do you remember the locker room feeling about Kevin Nash in his early tenure as Booker here?
1: You know, I don't know. I wasn't in the locker room, even, even you know, when I was going to Nitros. I didn't hang out in the locker room, folks. I was a president of the company and in many cases an on-air talent. Um, I had my own office and dressing room. I didn't dress with the rest of the crew. So I couldn't tell you. I, I could tell you that going into this, I knew what it would be. When you put a, an active performer, somebody that's on the active roster, and you put them in charge of creative, you know it's going to create issues. It has to. It happened with Ric Flair. When Ric Flair uh, was was head of creative or head booker for a while, You had a certain group of people that were excited for a variety of reasons, not just because they were friends with Rick, but you had a contingent of people that just resented it and pissed and moaned about it. I knew the same thing was going to happen with Kevin in that situation. It's inevitable. And Kevin knew it as well, but it was something that we needed to do. I didn't have a lot of options at that time. Couldn't put an ad in paper saying, Hey, I'm looking for a head booker so you work with what you've got take advantage of the resources in front of you
2: it's just that kevin had this reputation at the time for looking after his boys we know the click from wwf at the time and the curtain call and here we are a few years later and some of his boys are presented in highly favorable light and uh Based on the recollections here given to the Observer, it feels like maybe there is some perpetuating of that ideology that he's going to take care of his boys. And I read this from the March 15th Observer. He says, with Eric Bischoff on vacation in France, apparently for several weeks. Hulk Hogan and Kevin Nash turned the Nitro show into their personal vehicle to get themselves over, which is hardly different from bookers of the past who still perform. But what is different is the lengths they've gone to bury virtually all the talent and put on what many would say was the single worst major league promotion television show in history on March 8th. The morale of the undercard wrestlers, which has been largely bad to awful ever since the collective realization that the old guys on top are actually burying them rather than the feeling it was their own paranoia saying so, well, it all hit rock bottom. When Bischoff, who has largely disappeared and seemingly looking for his escape off the Titanic taking water, was asked, what is so obvious? His response was he promised Nash full control and that Nash was going to be given a chance to sink or swim without interference. This is uh and and I normally I I do not dislike Dave Meltzer in the way that you do. There's obviously personal animosity there, which is totally understandable. But this does read like fiction to me to a large it degree. It is fiction. It's all fiction.
1: First of all, I wasn't in Paris for two weeks. I wish I was. I was gonna say, how was France? It was great. I took my daughter. Uh, my daughter, Montana, she was she had been studying French since she I think she was in the first grade. Um, and we we got her a tutor. She was very interested in the language and she stuck with it. So when she was in high school, because I always got to do a lot of stuff with my son, you know, because, you know, I take him hunting, take him fishing. My daughter wasn't into that, you know. Um, And I always believed in trying to do things to have those special father-daughter days, just like I had father-son days. You know what I mean? Um, And one of the reasons that... I took her to France just because I wanted to do something that was unique, just her and I. And I think we went for a week and it was an amazing trip. We had a tour guide. We stayed right by the Arc de Triomphe in, in, in Paris. Um, we had a, a, a great trip. I took her horseback riding through the French wilderness with a guide and tour, which was, was an amazing, amazing trip. But I wasn't gone for two weeks.
2: Meanwhile, At the same time, Uncensored 1999 took place on March 14th. And guess what happened, Eric? Kevin Nash faced Rey Mysterio. Who do you think won? I don't know. Who won? Uh, That would be Kevin Nash, who ends up defeating Rey Mysterio in 6 minutes and 19 seconds. This is pretty much Rey Mysterio selling most of the time. Uh, Eventually, Lex Luger is back here. He trips Mysterio, leading to Nash using a high kick and jackknife powerbomb for the pin. Not the giant killer gimmick has been destroyed after one month, which was the plan all along. I'm trying to figure out what the purpose of it was to begin with, Dave says. He gives it one and a half stars. Rey Mysterio does not get a comeuppance once again on Kevin Nash. He got that one two-minute and four. Yeah, because
1: that would be believable, right? That The audience would suspend their disbelief to the extent that a 150-pound guy who's five foot five or six or whatever he is, um, if he weighed 150 pounds at the time, is going to be able to beat a 330-pound, six-foot, some-odd. He so beat fast. him clean a few weeks earlier. But you're not going to do it two, twice in a row. <laughs> yeah, you can pull one out. Absolutely, you can pull one out. But you're going to beat him? Is he going to beat Kevin Nash on a consistent basis? Come on.
2: That's if silly. he is this powerful fighting underdog baby face, I mean, every now and then the Yankees get slayed by the underdog Tampa Bay Rays. That happens, man. I mean. If we're trying to get Rey Mysterio over, is a big time. He did. Game.
1: He beat him. He beat he him. Did. So he beat him once. You just, you just, you just made a
2: fool of your own statement. He did. He was that New York. Yes. You just said, you just said that. Oh, well, he's not gonna beat the big man but he did beat him so why is it not un- twice in a row
1: not only un- un- acknowledge he beat him once is he gonna go out and beat him every time they meet what are we gonna have a you know best of seven <laughs> series with ray mysterio and kevin nash yeah the audience will buy that come
2: on. i don't know i don't know man i just i don't understand what the point of this was for ray mysterio then at the end of the day
1: that's because you weren't in the room
2: i see and neither were, neither were you neither were you. Looking-
1: You're looking at it 20 some odd years later from the perspective of someone that's never been in the business and it doesn't make any sense to you. And I'm not suggesting that it made sense. I'm just suggesting to you that unless you're in the room, unless you're dealing with all of the variables or you know what the next idea is, it's really hard to look at a creative decision and pick it apart 20 years later. You can do it to entertain yourself and to make yourself feel smart, but it's it's really difficult to do because you weren't there. You weren't in the moment. You weren't dealing with the issues and the variables.
2: Well, you're right, Eric, because I was too busy playing ultimate wrestling trivia and not in the room where it happened. Because whether you're a fan of wrestling companies today or you were glued to your TV on Monday nights and your favorite wrestlers are no longer active, we got the perfect free mobile game for you on both Androids, Google Play, and Apple's App Store, Ultimate Wrestling Trivia. Feel the flood of memories come rushing back as you test your knowledge on all things from the world of professional wrestling by playing Ultimate Wrestling Trivia. You're not alone in this quest, by the way. They've enlisted the help of more than 30 of their more famous friends to ask you some of the questions and cheer you on. They'll celebrate when you answer a question correctly or maybe even bust your chops like Eric just did when you get a question wrong. This game has multiple former world champions, including five Hall of Famers, such as Kevin Nash, Mr. USA Tony Atlas, Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner, Jerry the King Lawler, and yes, even Eric Bischoff. You can download Ultimate Wrestling Trivia today and see where you stack up against the competition on the leaderboard. Search Ultimate Wrestling Trivia in the App Store or Google Play Store or go to UltimateWrestlingTrivia.com for more info Eric, you and I had a chance to do some trivia just a couple weeks ago on ad-free shows. I think you probably could have benefited from playing this game beforehand. I, yes.
1: Yes. Trivia is not my thing. I, 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 don't, I just don't pay attention to stuff that happened more than an hour ago. Unless it's going to affect my life in one way, shape, or form, it, I just delete the data. But when it comes to playing a game like Wrestling Trivia – I could use that data. And I, re- I remember um, recording this with, with the team, and it was fun. This is going to be a fun game, really fun game.
2: Well, if you like trivia, you'll love Ultimate Wrestling Trivia, the free mobile game with over 10,000 questions, more than 600 video questions, and over 30 wrestlers and legends like Eric Bischoff. Find out who knows more wrestling trivia between you and your friends when you all play and join the same faction Again, to download just search Ultimate Wrestling Trivia in the Apple App Store or Google Play Store, or go to ultimatewrestlingtrivia.com for more information. So as all of this chaos is happening here with Ray Mysterio not winning against Kevin Nash on pay-per-view, that Titanic sinking ship that has been referenced multiple times here, well, it's becoming more apparent that it's going down. For the night of March 29th, Raw was viewed by 7,320,000 viewers, an all-time record. And over the head-to-head period, Nitro was viewed by 3,820,000 viewers, or barely half of the Raw audience. Okay, stop
1: right there. This is fucking awesome. Let's hear it. Here's a perfect example of, of... Meltzer's coverage. This is an unmitigated disaster. Monday Night Raw had seven million viewers. Nitro only had three million. 50% of the raw doom and fucking gloom. And, and by the way, there was a lot of shit going wrong. So I'm not <laughs> it wasn't doom and gloom. But what I'm pointing out here is this is the this is it. From Dave Meltzer's perspective, 7 million viewers for WWE, 3 million for WCW, half of of WWE's audience. Where right now today in 2022, Meltzer and Alvarez are doing backflips because AEW broke a million for the first time in forever. You know what 1 million viewers is? Less than half of Monday Night Raw or SmackDown. So, come on.
2: I just want to know, were you able to securely fasten your floaty from the Titanic, or did you make it to the lifeboat in time?
1: I have no idea what you're talking about.
2: The sinking ship that is WCW Nitro being booked by Kevin Nash here. Is he taking any heat for viewership numbers like that?
1: No. No. No, what is that being
2: attributed? Look, the,
1: the trend had been established already. Kevin came in as it, it, trying to plug the holes. He didn't cause the holes. He was trying to plug them as best he could. Um, so no, who would take heat from who? For me, fuck no. I knew what he was up against. Take heat from Harvey Schiller? No. Harvey Schiller was in over his head dealing with other things. My boss was Harvey Schiller. He was a president of TBS Sports. He was jockeying to be president of Turner Broadcasting in this merger. His eyes were way off the ball. He didn't he didn't even know who was booking. He didn't we didn't he didn't know Kevin Nash. So he was getting no heat there. Was he getting heat from, you know, Dave Meltzer? Sure, probably. And and the Dave Meltzer rights that are out there? Sure, probably. But we all knew that going in. So no, there was no heat. Enough of that.
2: Let's go back to Spring Stampede here, April 11th, 1999, from Tacoma. That's where Bill Goldberg pins Kevin Nash in 7 minutes and 44 seconds. As you recall, at the beginning of this this episode, we talked about Kevin Nash ending Bill Goldberg's streak here. Nash tries to cheat and uses a chair shot on Goldberg, but Goldberg makes the big recovery using a claw to the groin, followed by a spear and a jackhammer. So Bill does get his win back. And I'm curious... Because I I think anyone looking at the outside, it feels like this would be a reasonable conclusion. Kevin's putting himself in a big spot here, but he's using that position to show that he's willing to do, quote unquote, the job to get another bigger name over. Is that a, I guess, is that the kind of vibe that someone in his position would want to give off to the rest of the locker room that, Hey, I I'm willing to put over other guys in the process, even if they're bigger main event guys, and I don't have to be the guy at the top. Does that make any sense?
1: I understand why people will think that way. Right. Again, it's a reflection of themselves more often than not. And by that, I mean, that wasn't the reason. It had nothing to do with the reason why, and I'm guessing here, I didn't talk to Kevin about it, but I know Kevin well enough um, to know that if that was the decision that Kevin and the rest of the team came up with, it's because that's what they felt in that moment in time was best for business. And I promise you, Kevin wasn't worried about or hoping that by putting himself in that position that he could mitigate some of the locker room unrest. That's 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 dirt sheet fanboy, never been in the business bullshit. That's not why he did it. I guarantee it. It's not why he did it. I I'm, but that but 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 if you're on the outside looking in, and particularly if you're writing about it and you're trying to create a narrative, sure, it's exactly why he did it.
2: I guess it's one of those perception is reality or isn't reality sort of situations. So. I understand the ideology that, well, I'm on top. I gotta show that I'm willing to put the other boys over. But I also do think it's getting too tied into the semantics.
1: That ideology, that's dirt sheet nonsense. Mm-hmm. You're calling it ideology and making it sound like it's a kind of a uh, an intellectual kind of discussion or debate. It's not. It's insecure little fanboy dirt sheet nerds trying to project what they think is going on from their own insecure, ignorant, in the literal sense of the word, no information, knowledge, or experience. They're, they're projecting their own ignorance and insecurities as a human being into a situation that they have no firsthand knowledge of.
2: Well, there's something else significant that happens on this pay-per-view, and that is Diamond Dallas Page winning the WCW world title for the first time in a four-way against Ric Flair, Hulk Hogan, and Sting. It's a, it's a big deal. Was that a Kevin Nash plan or was that a collective effort from you guys to give Dallas that opportunity?
1: I think, you know, I I, I
2: don't know, you know, again,
1: I tried not to be in that room. (laughs) I was trying really hard to stay out of that room um, because I had other rooms I had to be in. But I think Diamond Dallas Page's momentum was pretty clear to everybody. Page had become a credible, marketable, legitimate star, and Nash was obviously well aware of it because he had he took part in it. He helped elevate Diamond Dallas Page and some of their issues earlier on when Page, you know, when they wanted Page to join the NWO and all that. So there was a history, there was a backstory, um, and not to pretend I don't put some merit to it. Now she's pretty tight with page. So for all of the right reasons, and then because of the relationship, if it was Kevin's idea solely, which I don't think it was, I'm sure page had a lot to do with that. And I'm sure other people, I'm sure Scott Hall had a lot to do with that. I'm sure there were other people that had a lot to, you know, to do or to, to chime in to support that decision. I don't know who wouldn't support that decision at that time based on the success that Diamond Page Diamond Dallas Page had created for himself.
2: Well, I totally believe there's merit in Diamond Dallas's Diamond Dallas Page's pursuit of the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. As you said, he was getting the crowd reactions, but as you just said, also he's one of his boys, and Kevin Nash is actually going to be the number one contender to face him at Slam in St. Louis on May 9th, which is interesting because as we just reco- we just recalled rather. Kevin Nash just lost to Goldberg. Now he's becoming the number one contender for the championship. Does that reflect their friendship? And, hey, I'm going to be the first guy you're going to defend against
1: sort of thing? No, I think it just, I think it reflects something that made sense to them creatively, logically, given the backstory, given the history. And despite what people may want to think or say or or pretend they know, um, Kevin Nash was one of the biggest draws we had. Kevin Nash and the NWO was still not as hot as it was, but it was a good choice. It was a good choice.
2: Yeah. Well, he would lose it to Sting on Nitro beforehand, and then he'd gain it right back later that night. So it's a lot of hot potato with the WCW World Heavyweight Championship before he ends up facing Kevin Nash on pay per view as his first pay per view challenger. But before we get into dealing with that, Eric Bischoff, yeah. You just celebrated your birthday a couple months ago. It's a big occasion as we celebrate getting a little older in life. Well, you got to take care of yourself as you get a little older in life as well. And I want to talk to you about Basis by Elysium Health. It's the most trusted source for NAD supplementation. Their product Basis is clinically proven to increase levels of NAD by 40% safely and sustainably. And this targets aging right At its source. They're unlike any other health company I've seen, and they're at the forefront of NAD supplementation. They have dozens of the world's best scientists. Seven of them, Eric, are Nobel Prize winners. They've been studying this science of aging for more than 30 years. And NAD is found in every single cell of your body, it's responsible for creating energy. And regulating hundreds of cell functions, but NAD levels decline as you age. Lack of sleep, intense exercise, unbalanced diet, and sun overexposure also deplete NAD levels. Decreased NAD levels are linked to faster biological aging, and they can slow down vital bodily functions. Well... Basis replenishes youthful levels of NAD to promote healthy aging, support cellular energy and metabolism, and reduce general tiredness to keep you feeling good for longer. Many Basis customers also report experiencing higher energy, less fatigue, and more satisfying workouts. Eric, you know all about NAD. It keeps you going every day. Uh, How much has Basis helped you out in feeling your best self here?
1: It's absolutely part of my daily routine. You know, my wife, Mrs. B., Um, She's been studying nutrition now since, I mean, studying it seriously for probably the last 15 years. Um, She's a holistic nutritionist, and she researches so much. And she started telling me about NAD before, you know, we started having the product as a sponsor. And she's a firm believer in it. And she's pointed me to the research, and now I understand what it does. And and why she's such a strong supporter of it, so yeah, it's uh, NAD is one of the first things I do um, in the morning um, before I eat. Um, I have <laughs> I have my AG one
2: basis, and you get your basis.
1: Yep, and I get my basis, and uh, it's just part of the process for me. I, I'm I'm never going to stop taking care of myself nutritionally. I feel young. I act young. I'm still physically able to do. Probably everything I could do in my thirties, maybe not quite as well, but I can still do it. <laughs> um, but you got to work at that. You know, as you get older, you've got to watch what you eat, got to watch what you drink, you got to exercise appropriately, but more, more importantly, you've got to pay attention to what you put in your body because the older you get, the more important nutrition becomes for all the right reasons. So I love the product, use it every day and won't stop using it.
2: Absolutely. Basis supports energy and metabolism on the cellular level and helps maintain healthy DNA. That's how he keeps his hair good, too, in addition to keeps. It supports in recovery from workouts. It reduces general tiredness and fatigue, healthy skin, and general health and wellness. Go to trybasis.com slash 83weeks and enter code 83weeks at checkout to save 10% off Basis prepaid plans, as well as other Elysium Health supplements. That's tribasis.com slash 83 weeks and use code 83 weeks at checkout to save 10%. And we thank Elysium Health for sponsoring this episode of 83 weeks. So let's get back on track here and let's talk about, slamboree That's where Kevin Nash pinned Diamond Dallas Page to capture the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. There's a bunch of gaga. Randy Savage interfered for DQ, but here comes Eric Bischoff. He came out and ordered Savage to leave and ordered the match restarted. He said he didn't care what Ted Turner or Harvey Schiller was going to do to him on Monday and what the rules of the match were. It was being restarted. Page tried to use a chair, but Nash moved and the chair hit the ropes and rebounded in and Page's face a la Terry Funk. Page came back with a low blow. and When he tried another chair, Page used a high kick to the chair into Page's face and delivered Kevin Nash, rather, delivered the jackknife at three minutes and 44 seconds of the restarted match. There was no post match celebration. There is a lot going on here, Eric. You are back in the middle of all the weeds. What did you think of how all this went down? I didn't feel
1: bad about it. I didn't feel great about it. It was maintenance. It was just trying to keep the energy going. There was heat. I still had heat, not the degree that I had had. I'd been off TV for a little while, and I needed to be, not, not only because I had other issues I was dealing with, but just as a character, that, that character gets tired. Mine um, my, my, my did pretty quickly. So being able to come back and get involved in a finish like that and doing something somewhat controversial made all the sense in the world to me, but I didn't get, I didn't go back to the locker room and high five and celebrate. And I, I I didn't feel, I didn't feel like it was a special moment. It was a maintenance move.
2: Well, after that, Eric, we get what was supposed to be a, a pretty significant angle that unfortunately due to the nature of the beast would end up getting shifted. And that is the tonight show angle with Kevin Nash and Brett Hart. Now we talked about this in the Brett Hart episode that is in the archives that you should all go check out. But what do you remember the end game of the tonight show feud planning to be at that stage? And how did Kevin handle the adjustment that was put in front of him with Owens passing?
1: Well, Kevin handled it well. I mean, Kevin handled it not only as a pro, but as someone who is deeply affected um, so how did he handle it? He handled it exactly the way he should, should have as a professional and with compassion. Um, what was the end game going in, man? I don't know, even know if we had an end game going in. It was like, really Holy shit. This is, here's a match. This will work. Two huge stars. Let's get something going. There wasn't again to suggest that there was a long-term plan with anything at this point would be bullshit.
2: Even with something as big as that, the Tonight Show, we got to put in perspective here. A ton of people are watching the Tonight Show. Jay Leno is a huge star. You're getting TV time for both Kevin Nash and Bret Hart here. And there's still no long-term plan in play with either of them?
1: Not at that point. Have you not been hearing what I've been saying for the last hour and 34 minutes? There was no long-term planning, bro. There was There was day-to-day survival. I mean, that's like asking somebody who's in the middle of putting their house is on fire, the the fire department's on their way, and you're trying to keep, put that fire out before, you know, as much as you can so the house doesn't burn down before the fire truck gets there. And you ask the guy who's trying to put out the fire in his own house before it gets too large that it's going to burn the house down and say, Well, are you planning any additions to this house? <laughs> let's, let's talk about adding a room. Fuck, you're trying to put out the fire. And that's really the that was the mentality of of WCW at that point in time it was it was a bad situation
2: well Cross here's something i will say i went back and i watched some of these first segments here and kevin nash looks like he belongs on that stage he looks like he could wheel and deal in hollywood if he had the opportunity to which as we know he would get some opportunities to did you see potential crossover potential in kevin at the time Sure I did.
1: And and again, the tonight show wasn't, well, we're going to put this on a tonight show. We better have it. It wasn't because we had this huge, big pay-per-view laid out and we, we thought it was going to be, you know, a record setting pay-per-view. We use the tonight show and I don't want to be disrespectful here. I had easy access. I had a personal relationship there. I could pick up a phone call and say, Hey, here's what we're doing. You think this would be interesting for Jay and it would more than likely happen if it made sense. Um, it was just a great opportunity to expose Brett and Kevin to an audience that weren't already watching WCW. And, and it was also a great way to kind of reinforce to our advertisers that we still had that uh, we're more than just, you know, a wrestling company.
2: Are you surprised that Kevin hasn't done even more in Hollywood than what no. he has done? Why is no. that?
1: Because he's so fucking big. I mean, unless somebody's casting a movie, and Kevin's, I love Kevin's acting. I can't, what was the movie he did last? Um,
2: well, he was in Magic, Mike. He was great with that. He did no, see- he did
1: one recently. It came out about six months, eight months ago. I'll I think know. of the name of it. But I went to see it, and he did a, fin- actually, I didn't even know he was in the movie. Um, we Kids went to see Something with a dog. I don't know what it was, because it was a dog movie. I had to go see the dog it, movie. It was right? called Dog. And then, boom, there's Kevin. And he, he did a great job. He did a great job in that movie. And I know it was a huge movie or a significant part, but Kevin's really, really good as an actor. And he's got a great look. But he's so fucking big. It's kind of hard to cast him in movies that aren't looking for someone who's overwhelmingly large and eating up your screen. are you going to... We going to put him with, you know? Who's who's going to coast? Have you ever seen Tom Cruise in person? You could pick him, pick him up, put him in your pocket, and take him for a walk. (laughs) You can't have that guy working with, and and a lot of actors and actresses are five, six, five, seven, five, eight. You start breaking six foot, and your roles become. More challenging because there's just not a lot of people that they can put with you where your size doesn't make it obvious that you're dealing with a much smaller character or person as a character. So, no, I'm not surprised at all. I'm surprised he's been able to get as many roles as he has because of his size. If Kevin Nash was 5'10 with the same abilities and the same look and everything, but if he was 5'10 and 215, 220, we'd probably be seeing a lot more of Kevin. You know, he never reached that Rock-like or Cena-like level of action hero. That's obviously there are people that have come from wrestling, like John Cena, like obviously The Rock, even Batista, um, because they played those Marvel characters or you know those larger than life characters. Of course, Rock did a lot of Disney movies early on, did Walking Tall the remake, you know, but but also Rock isn't as big as Kevin, neither is John as far as height, so. Yeah, I think I think Kevin's size has probably held him back far more than anything.
2: He's got great self awareness, and he's more than willing to make fun of himself, which always makes for a great performer in that regard. So I always enjoy his work, but I I totally hear what you're saying on that front as well. Uh, the Great American Bash '99. That was June 13th in Baltimore, and it's Nash versus Savage for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Kevin Nash retains via DQ in seven and a half minutes. It is an absolute cluster of a main event. There are like five different people interfering. It gets minus one star in the observer. And I don't want to get into the semantics of it because it really doesn't pay off ultimately at the end. But this is one of those instances where it's very much becoming apparent to me as a viewer that the main event scene in WCW is really starting to struggle at this point. And that would kind of set the stage for where things would be headed for the next calendar year in that sense, where the main events just aren't really living up to promotion or build. Uh, did you guys share that sentiment at all?
1: Of course. You know, you had to do is watch the show or look at the financials or the ratings or, you know, any any of the other indicators as to where your business is. The wheels had gone from wobbling in late 1998 to falling off by June of ninety nine. Up, oh, just lost a wheel. Up, oh, that one's wobbling. It looks like it's about ready to come off. I mean, that was the, that was just that was WCW at that point. It was a mess.
2: It was. If you guys it- want
1: to? You know, people listening to this. I know I've, I've hit this before, but if you really want to understand, not buy into the bullshit narrative of Dave Meltzer and. Brian Alvarez or their ilk is read Guy Evans book, just read it. And no, it's a, it's a big book. It's a lot of reading, but the information, the actual interviews from executives at a much higher level than mine that directly impacted WCW, those interviews are there. That research has been done for you. And if you want to, you know, buy into Dave Meltzer's bullshit or the wrestling, you know, social media narrative, then feel free to do that. You know, you you live in a free country. Thank goodness at this point, still kind of, sort of. But you certainly do have the right to walk around and be stupid. That's what you want to do. But if you're a wrestling fan and you really want to understand this era, especially 1999 in WCW, read Guy Evans' book, The Incredible Rise of Ted Turner's Nitro and whatever the full title of the book is, I can't remember anymore. But it's a fascinating book because it's so detailed and there's so much credibility with over 120 interviews from people that were actually there and actually made decisions. Above my level. So check it out. Plus, Guy's a good dude. Wrestling fans, it is time to win with Zen. Get to wrestlingprizes.com and register for your chance to win a once in a lifetime digital QA session with wrestling legends Ric Flair, Jim Russ, or get this, Mick Foley. Yeah, you heard me right, Mick Foley. Winners also get an autographed replica championship belt and a prize pack from Zen, America's number one nicotine pouch. Register once per day now through July 14th. Wrestling Prizes. Dot com. No purchase necessary to enter or win. Open to U.S. residents 21 and over. Void where prohibited for official rules. Visit wrestlingprices.com. Warning this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is
2: an addictive chemical. He He is a good dude and he did a great job with that book. It's tremendously detailed and I really did enjoy it with the amount of research I was put into it, but no amount of research put into what I'm about to talk about could even salvage this. Eric, this is June 28th main event of raw is stone cold. Steve Austin versus the undertaker. The main event of nitro is David flair versus Kevin Nash. They had all the heels as lumberjacks here. Arn Anderson is the ref. Everyone jumps Kevin Nash. It's like 16 on one. David puts the figure four on him. Nash broke it like it was a joke. Started beating everyone up. I'm reading part of the Observer recap here. David got the taser because we love tasers in WCW, but Nash got it away and zapped David and Anderson and threatened everyone else. He then carried gorgeous George out over his shoulder and Tori Wilson came running away with Nash to give the impression of Mr. Cool Guy is almost as cool as Tommy Dreamer and go and do his own three-way dance. I guess he lost by countout, Dave says. It must be one of those sports entertainment finishes, but at least in those, they play music for no reason and we get to cheer or boo. The guy simply took off after spending three hours of a TV show building up a three-minute main event match. And he goes to his limo, and he sees a dreaded Hummer in the corner. And in the mirror, the front side mirror, we zoom in and we see it's Jeff Farmer. The fake sting. And that is how Nitro goes off the air. Uh, of the all time great main events in professional wrestling history, Dusty Rhodes and Ric Flair, um, The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, where does David Flair and Kevin Nash sit for you, Eric Bischoff?
1: It was a TV show, brother. None of those aforementioned guys necessarily wrestle. You need Dusty Rhodes. You see Dusty Rhodes wrestle in a main event.
2: No, but we did see Uh The Undertaker and Stone Cold Steve Austin on the other program that night. Why do
1: you think you saw that, by the way? Let's just diverge it a little bit here. Why do you think you saw Stone Cold Steve Austin and Undertaker in a main event on free television?
2: Because they could afford to do that because they booked high-quality main events and great pay-per-views?
1: No, because Nitro and WCW, one of the biggest criticisms that Meltzer and company you know, started perpetrating early on. So, oh my God, they're giving away main events on TV. You should be safe for pay-per-view. In other words, just, you know, have job matches, stick with the stick, you know, the traditional wrestling formula that existed before Nitro, before we started putting on main event matches, main event quality, pay-per-view level matches on free TV. And guess what got WWE to the point where they had overtaken us by 1999 because they were following a formula that we created. Now that doesn't necessarily justify Kevin Nash or David Flair, or is going to satisfactorily answer your smarmy fucking question. But the point is that, yeah, we had that level of competition. No doubt about it. Steve Austin undertaker head to head with, Kevin Nash, David Flair, gee, what's going to happen? Of course, we knew going in that David Flair and Kevin Nash was not necessarily a pay-per-view quality main event, especially going head-to-head with what we were going to go head-to-head with. But guess what? The decisions weren't made at any point in time that I can remember or in anything that I was involved with where we adjusted our main event because of what we heard was going to happen on Raw. For whatever reason, I'm not going to justify it or criticize it or put it over. Kevin made the decision he made with, with David Flair based on the story, based on where we hoped we could we could go with it, irregardless of what Monday Night Raw was going to do. As opposed to what you know the meltzers of the world would like to believe, because again, they've never been in that position. They're insecure, ignorant people to begin with, ignorant in the literal sense of the term, as we've discussed, not just being critical. Um, you, would, you would assume if you were one of those individuals that, you know, oh, my gosh, they were sitting back and they, they were adjusting on the fly based on what they saw was happening on Raw, or they had a different main event scheduled, you know, and they decided to go with this main event because of what was happening on Raw. Bullshit. Or in this case, you know, I'm sure there were those out there that were probably living off of a conspiracy theory. Kevin Nash is really working for the WWE. Why else would he put himself in a match against David Flair against The Undertaker <laughs> and Stone Cold Steve Austin? All that shit was flying around. dude. The you just is, said,
2: Eric, you just said didn't that like, to do with it. you just said that it was dirt sheet book or the dirt sheets would give you crap for being all. Oh, let's put our big main events on weekly television, mm-hmm. but you, you stuck to your guns and you did it anyway. So why is that mentality changing then? Why are we not doing that? And we're putting David Flair versus Kevin Nash in a 16 on one lumberjack match.
1: Because we're telling stories. We're getting heat. I'm not defending it. I'm not telling it was a great idea, but that's what we were doing. And it's funny because, you know, now again, this is going to be a tough one because David Flair, first of all, I feel bad for David Flair because David Flair was never really given it a chance. I agree. He, he got thrown into the turbine of a 767 while it was, you know, on the ground with the engines running. He got trashed because we thrust him into a position he should have never been thrust into. That was not David Flair's fault. David Flair is a good dude, but we took advantage of him and he was exploited. And there was no long-term plan for David. There should have been. There wasn't. Um But if you look at a lot of the criticism that we were getting at the time, and I've heard even recently, older guys are getting too old. We need to get some young guys in the mix. We need to elevate. We need some different stars in the main event. Well, not that this was a good example of trying to do that because we certainly didn't do any favors for David Flair with this story. But we were getting to the point where, okay, that formula that got us to the dance, that made us the number one wrestling company in the world, that allowed us to defeat WWE, nobody else had ever accomplished that. But that formula is getting old. Time to try something else. Time to go in a different direction. What we did to get us to the dance, what we did to maintain that position for almost two years, ain't working anymore, folks. Now we got to try something different. And that's what David Flair and Kevin Nash was something different.
2: I do think it's also worth noting that at the time the WWF had unprecedented depth in their main event scene where there were six or seven guys who on any given night could have been in your main event and you bought them as a potential championship contender.
1: And you know why that is? Because WCW was in the same boat in 96 and 97, hell going into 98. Do you know why? Because we had momentum. Because the stories were clicking and everything was working and you could introduce people like Bill Goldberg and you could shoot them to the moon. Because when you have momentum on your side, when you've got that positive energy and people are just into what you're doing, it's really easy to be able to, we had the same thing in WCW you look at the WCW roster 96 97 98 hell it was much the same roster 99 the difference is we lost some momentum the momentum shifted from WCW decidedly WCW to WWE and once that energy and that momentum shifts it's really hard to unshift it it is really difficult to get your audience back the guy, actually, the, the individual that worked with Jay Leno, that, that I'm still friends with this today, today, his name is Gary Considine. Gary was an executive at NBC for a long time. He was the executive producer of The Tonight Show. And still a friend, as I said. And Dave, excuse me. Gary and I would talk a lot about what, works, what worked in television, not only in comedy, which was Gary's world at that time, uh, but also in, in, in television in general. And I remember in one of those conversations, Gary said to me, goes, you know, Eric, once, once the audience votes with their remote and they change the channel, it's really hard to get them back. In fact, it's harder to get them back than it was to get them in the first place because now they've made up their minds. They're just over your product. And you have to work three times harder to get them to change their minds. And I always use analogies sometimes just to clarify things for myself. And I liken it to a restaurant. You know, if 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 you go into a restaurant and you sit down and never tried it before, heard a couple of good things about it, saw some good reviews on Yelp, whatever, um, you go in and you try it, you go, oh, I kind of like it. So you go in again a week later, a couple of days later. Oh, it's really good. I like that menu item too. You go in there every week for three, four, five weeks. And you really enjoy that restaurant until one day you go in and you ate something and it just, you didn't like it. You were turned off for whatever reason. Could have been the service. Could have been the food. Once you leave that restaurant, chances are you're not coming back. And that's why you, because now I've got to reach that customer that used to come to the restaurant and try to convince them that they're not going to have that same experience anymore. You're going to fall in love with it all over again. People aren't inclined to do that. Once you lose them, it's hard to get them back. And we had lost the audience, our storytelling formula and it started in 98. It wasn't it wasn't the finger to do. It wasn't everything all the dirt sheet meltzer nerds that, that have never been near the wrestling business. It's not what they thought. The real what you're seeing in June and July of 99 is the result of what was happening late to 98. And again, you know, I hate to keep saying this because it's almost unfair, but until you've been there and until you've seen it, until you've experienced it, it's hard to understand. But I remember when Gary told me, because man, once they vote with the remote, it's hard to get them back. And that's what we were experiencing. We could. I mean, there was nothing that we could book or do that was going to shift that audience back because they rediscovered WWE. And let's be honest, WWE was outperforming—not outperforming—taking um, the strength of what Nitro was and did, and the for, the storytelling formulas and the formats that that made Nitro the number one wrestling show in the world. They took that. Formula used it to create the attitude era and then really went over the top with the sexuality and Steve Austin flipping people off and the beer drinking and you know, all of the crazy shit that the 18 to 49 year old audience, because that's who we had by design, Nitro was created because I fucking did it to go after the 18 to 49 year old audience because WWE in 95 and previous to 95 was targeting teens and preteens. And I knew I couldn't outperform WWE against teens and preteens, but they were leaving the 18 to 49 year old audience alone. And all of my focus went to that audience. Well, guess what WWE went, huh? well that works. And if that works, let's really turn the volume up. Once the audience made that decision and WWE was the place to be, Getting them back was almost impossible. Well, it wasn't almost, it was impossible
2: for so us. So there is not one angle, one celebrity crossover, nothing that Kevin Nash's tenure as Booker could have done. No. I don't, I don't
1: believe so. I don't believe so.
2: To and that's a fair assessment. I, and I agree with that assessment for the record. I think it's just important to put out there that the writing was almost on the wall at this point, that it was never going to return. <laughs>
1: it wasn't almost on the wall, brother. By this time, the writing was on the wall. I had an audio cassette and the video.
2: It's It's straightforward. It's to the point. It's acknowledgeable by everyone watching the product that it is not going to return to what it was or you're not going to be able to recapture that momentum because as you said, they soured on the product. And Eric, one product you and I are never going to sour on. That is AG1s by Athletic Greens. I know this is one of your favorite sponsors that we've got here on 83 Weeks, and how could they not be? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. It is a special blend of ingredients that supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging, all of those things, Eric, I'm just going to let you go off here because I know AG One's is right in your wheelhouse.
1: No, it is. It's a great product, and I think the one thing I really want to get across here because I, I I I talk about this product a lot in social media and obviously on this show because I firmly believe in it. My wife and I, Mrs. B and I, have been using this. We use this product for six months before they became a sponsor, and we both use it every single day and I'm not to go, I'm not going to go spend time going into all of the nutritional reasons why, because number one, you did. And I really encourage people to go to the website and look up this product and see everything that is packed into this product. But the reason I'm so excited about it, it's delicious. And I've tried for years, man, when I was doing martial arts heavily and training heavily and running seven or eight miles a day and all that stuff. um, I tried different, you know, supplements, you know, spirulina was the big one back then. And, and it was horrible. It was just hard to get down. It was good for you, but it was just choking it down, was nasty. AG1 is delicious. It not only has a much more complete nutritional profile than any of the other supplements that I've ever tried before. They're bioavailable, meaning meaning they get into your system fast. They're they're high quality nutrients that are Readily adaptable and, and and digestible and getting to your system quickly and efficiently, but even that aside, man, this stuff tastes great. Because I, and so many people go, yeah, I really want to try it, but how does it taste? It's delicious. And I start my day out every single morning the same way, is I have my AG One, ice cold water, couple couple ice cubes in it, nothing else, no flavor, no sweetener, no nothing, just right out of the container. And I have it the first thing in the morning before I have any coffee or before I eat anything, because again, you want those nutrients to be bioavailable. You want them to get into your system and be digestible quickly and efficiently. And for me, that happens more effectively on an empty stomach. So I'll have that ice cold glass of AG1. I'll wait about an hour Half hour, I'll get into my coffee. I have breakfast around, well, it's not even breakfast, it's actually lunch, because I I like to kind of semi-fast. I like to do about a 16 or an 18-hour fast every day. And then I gradually start, you know, eating throughout the day whatever I'm going to eat. But I start my day out every single day with AG1. Absolutely love the product.
2: It is lifestyle friendly, whether you're keto, paleo, vegan, dairy free or gluten free contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything while still tasting good. And your subscription comes with a year's supply of vitamin D, which is so important to add in these long months that as we stretch through the dog days of summer into winter, especially when you're out there in Wyoming, man. I know the weather gets a little crazy. You need that vitamin D. It's good for you. And it costs you less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. It's cheaper than getting all those different supplements yourself. You're investing in an all-in-one nutritional insurance. And the beauty is we want to help you out here at 83 Weeks because it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, visit athleticgreens.com forward slash 83 weeks. Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash 83 weeks to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Eric Bischoff believes in this product. I believe in it as well. And we thank them for sponsoring
0: 83 weeks. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to GoliathLife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to GoliathLife.com.
2: Let's get into Bash at the Beach 99. We're in July now. Randy Savage and Sid Vicious defeat Sting and Kevin Nash in 13 minutes, 21 seconds with Savage pinning Nash to capture the WCW Heavyweight Championship. That's right. It's a tag team match where if Kevin Nash or Sting get pinned, the other guys win the championship. But Sting can't win the championship. It's not explained there. Uh, This goes down with George going in the ring to give Nash a low blow. It's Uh, Her first low-blow attempt came actually nowhere close, so Kevin Nash no-sells it. She freezes. Kevin Nash stood there for a little while longer, waited, and she hit him with another one, and Sid body slammed Nash, and he dropped him in the wrong position, and Savage eventually hits the elbow for the pin. This is just more of that main event chaos, Eric, that we are seeing here. Uh... I don't really have much more to add on that. Do you have anything that you'd like to chime in on? <laughs> no. Okay.
1: Uh, no, I know because I can't. I, I can't re- respond in a way that I haven't already. Yeah. <laughs> covered. So a lot of, yes. it's a lot of it, is what it is.
2: Right? it exactly. is what it
1: is. Right. Exactly. What
2: it is. What. I'm with you. I'm totally with you here. Uh, the next night on nitro Nash costs savage the title to the returning Hulk Hogan. This is red and yellow Hulk Hogan. He's challenging, uh, Nash challenges Hogan for the road wild pay-per-view, which takes place from Sturgis on August 14th. And, uh, Hulk Hogan pins Kevin Nash in a loser must retire match and retains the WCW title in 12 minutes and 16 seconds. So Nash loses a loser must retire match. He's coming off the road. Uh, what do you think the ideology was behind this for Kevin Nash to take some time off here?
1: I don't think he was taking time off. I think he was trying to take himself out of the TV picture to focus on the creative side of things. Right.
2: Uh, what What I mean by that, I, I should clarify, is give, taking some time off from TV maybe refreshing the character, focusing on booking. Was it entirely just, I'm going to put all my efforts in booking at that point?
1: I, I think so. And and possibly, probably um, only Kevin could speak to this because only he knows what he was feeling at this point in time. But again, knowing Kevin well enough, I'm guessing it's just, okay. This character, you know, my character on television needs a break. It's played itself out. It It just needs a break. And on top of that, I think he was Kevin was probably looking forward to being able to just focus on creative and not having to worry about his involvement or how it's going to be received or just being distracted by it.
2: Did you have any conversations with Kevin about him maybe expressing to you? I'm having a hard time balancing both of these. No, no, Kevin didn't. Kevin
1: didn't bitch. Nope.
2: Straightforward and to the point. Well, September 9th, 1999, uh, this is the day that you were reassigned of your duties.
1: I wasn't reassigned. I was fired.
2: I was putting it lightly, but yes, there you go. What was it? What was the date? Uh, September 9th, 1999.
1: Actually, it was September 10th. It was a Friday, (laughs) September 10th. That's when I was, you know, I can't say it was fired because they still paid me, but that's because I had a pay or play provision on my contract which basically said, you can fire me, you can send me home, but you still have to pay me, Um, which is exactly what they did.
2: We've heard from you multiple times, expressed that you really didn't pay a whole lot of attention to what was going on in WCW until you came back. Uh, But when you are sent home more or less here, how are you feeling in regards to any correlation to Booking was that expressed to you that because of booking, we're doing this. Was Kevin? Nash no, doing no, 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 in this? no,
1: no, no, absolutely not. Absolutely not.
0: Do the you discussion say,
1: I had with Har- Harvey Schiller, Har- Harvey in his way, I won't go through it. Cause I've covered this before. So I don't want to repeat myself, but basically Harvey was telling me to go home, lay low and I'll be back. Like, don't make a lot of noise. Don't piss anybody off that you haven't already pissed off, Eric. Just go home. I had two and a half years left on my contract. At a, it was a lot of money. So it was him just telling me to take a break. It's him and he told me, so man, you you need a break. Just go home. Yeah, but Harvey, I've got paper. Eric, just go home. We'll talk. That was the nature of that conversation. It had nothing to do with booking, nothing to do with booking. It had everything to do with every other aspect of WCW. And, and what I found out later and what anybody who reads Guy Evans' book would find out is the executives at AOL Time Warner did not want wrestling on the books. A lot of the executives at Turner Broadcasting, this is, this is well-documented Before I even got there as a talent, there were executives that were on the executive committee at Turner Broadcasting and didn't want wrestling. Now that Ted Turner was effectively out of the picture in 99, because he was, he got painted right out of the picture. He no longer had any influence. The only guy that gave a fuck about WCW and the company was named after him, no longer had any influence over the company. And that's when all of those people, again, refer to the Guy Evans book, if you don't believe me, I don't really care. Not you, but I mean, people listening to this. And you'll read for yourself what was going on. WCW was destined to become history starting in about June or July of 98. But now it was ramping up and speeding up. And the reason for me going home was because I had been fighting. I had been fighting with the head of financial, head of finance, Vicki Miller. She's on the executive committee, I believe. And she wanted me to come to her office. And I told Bill Bush, who worked for me, I'm not going to her office. If she wants to talk to me, she can come to my office. That's how contentious my relationship was with the people above me. Because I didn't give a fuck. I didn't care anymore. I didn't know that Ted Turner was no longer the guy calling the shots. I didn't know that if I picked fights with people above me, that ultimately we'd have to each go face Ted Turner and let him decide because that was the case. And it didn't happen often, but I had a good relationship with Ted. And if there's something I really, really wanted to do and I needed to get in front of Ted, I could. And if somebody in another department or another division had an issue with my decision, then me and that person would end up either in front of Ted or somebody close to it. And guess who always came out of that on top? But in 99, Ted Turner was no longer there for me. And I didn't even know it. So I was picking fights with motherfuckers. I was making fun of people that didn't know anything about my business. Vicki Miller being one of them. Can you imagine that? <laughs> the head of finance for a publicly held corporation wants to have a meeting with someone and that someone, a president of a division says, no, nah, I'm not going to her office. If she wants to talk to me, she can come here. That's exactly what I said oh on goodness. Thursday night, September 9th to Bill Bush. Oh my goodness. And by the way, Bill Bush reported to Vicki Miller. See what people don't understand in, in Turner broadcasting at the time, even though I had a tr- WCW, employed attorneys in my office, I wasn't their boss. They reported to the legal department. They didn't report to Eric Bischoff. And the only other situation that was just like that was finance. Even though Bill Bush and there were other Don Edwards and, and their staff were WCW finance employees, their job was to keep the books straight, keep everything flowing, communicate with Turner Broadcasting. That was their job even though they had offices within WCW, they didn't report to me. So when I, when Bill Bush came to, he said, Oh, Vicki Miller really wants to talk to you. And I said, fuck Vicki Miller. If she wants to talk to me. She can come to me. That was on Thursday night. I got a call Friday morning to come to, to Harvey Schiller's office. And that's when Harvey said, Eric, go home. You need a break. Just go home. Now in my mind, was it because I confided in Bill Bush and basically told Vicki Miller if she wanted to talk to me, she should come to me because I'm not going to her. Maybe, maybe not. But in my mind, that's what caused me to go home.
2: How did Kevin feel about that? How did Kevin feel? Yeah, about you being sent home. I don't know. I didn't talk to him about it. You never had any conversations with him about that?
1: No. No, man. Once once Harvey, because at first I didn't, I, I was confused. When Harvey sent me, I was like, what What do you mean go home? I know it's Friday, but I'm not going home. I got shit to do. In fact, my exact words are Harvey. i got a pay-per-view coming up. And Harvey said, not anymore. You don't. (laughs) And, (laughs) and, and it didn't even register. I said, well, what do you mean? I, and I went, Oh my God, I'm getting fired. (laughs) And, but once, once it soaked in, I got home. About 1030 in the morning, I only lived about 20 minutes from the office. Got home about 30, 11 in the morning. My wife said, what are you doing here? I said, I got fired. And we sat down and I talked about it with her. And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to jump in my plane. I had my own plane at the time. So I'm going to jump on my plane and go to Wyoming. I'm going fishing. And I did. I didn't talk to anybody. I don't think I even talked to Hulk or DDP. until you know, a couple of weeks after I said, fuck it. I'm unplugging. I'm out. I was relieved. I was glad to be gone.
2: Yeah. Well, you had that long drive home there after being relieved there to think some things over. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that this episode is brought to you by Car Shield. Eric, Car Shield makes it easy and affordable to protect your car from expensive repairs. And that's just for starters. Car Shield is the number one auto protection company in the US and offers protection plans. For around 100 bucks a month. The plans cover more parts than ever before, whether your car is 5,000 miles or 150,000 miles. Let me tell you how simple it is to get your car fixed. When you need a repair, you choose the mechanic, and Car Shields administrators handle the rest. That is it. You don't have to deal with the paperwork or the headaches. You are taken care of. I dealt with this horribly last year. I had no say over anything when I got hit by a texting driver. I wish I had Car Shield there backing me up, Eric. And the same goes for if your car breaks down, you're stuck on the side of the road. Plans through CarShield include coast-to-coast roadside assistance. Administrators are there for you with rental car options and trip reimbursement at no extra cost as well. You can get the coverage today, and you'll lock in your price now, and it will never go up, Eric. That means... As long as you own your car, no matter how old it is, you are protected from the rising cost of parts and repairs for your vehicle. Eric, I know inflation right now is terrible. Having that guarantee has got to be helpful.
1: It is. And all of our vehicles, I have five vehicles and a motorcycle, um, The newest one is a 2009. (laughs) Oh, wow. I mean, I keep my stuff. I keep my vehicles. And now they've got low miles on them. A couple of them do. My wife's got a really nice uh, Mercedes, a CLS 550. Uh, But you need coverage on cars like those, you know, the older cars, especially a car like a Mercedes because it's – when it's time to work on that car, it's it's going to cost you a buck or two. So, yeah, you you definitely want to look at a service like car shield In today's environment, with just the cost of vehicles and the cost of, of labor, um, you definitely want to have coverage. It used to be something like this was kind of like a luxury item. It's almost a necessity now because yeah. of the
2: economy. It, and- it's
1: almost foolish. It, it's not almost. It's foolish not to have it.
2: Well, CarShield helps protect my wallet from expensive car repairs, and they'll do the same for you as well. Go to carshield.com slash podcast to start your plan and lock in your pricing forever. That's carshield.com slash podcast. A deductible may apply. So you're gone. Kevin Nash still in charge of booking. He returns on camera October 4th. It's Nitro, and he's with Scott Hall. The outsiders are reformed in the day before Vince Russo signs with WCW and starting with October 18th, Vince Russo would take over all aspects of the booking. So Kevin Nash's final show as Booker was the October 14th thunder. And on that thunder, Eric, Kevin Nash is ready to go full scorched earth here uh, from Meltzer's recap. Nash saying on commentary and did nothing but make shoot comments all night. The vast majority of which were not only two inside for 99% of the audience, but also not funny at all. His very first statement was that everyone had accused him of being a horrible booker, but he had outsmarted them all by booking himself in the greatest angle ever, his own retirement. I got a chuckle from that line. I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, What do you think of that breaking down the fourth wall on live TV? I know in this era, it was always, especially the Vince Russo era of WCW it was always, Passé to make those comments like that. Uh, what do you think of that when you hear that?
1: I understand it, but it just, it, it, look, a little bit of that goes a long way. You know, it, some inside stuff every once in a while, it scratches the itch, you know, for that 10% of the audience um, that's into that kind of thing and lives in the dirt sheets and all that. Um, so, yeah, scratching that itch, you know throwing in one every once in a while. It can work as long as it doesn't alienate the the general audience. Um, Too much of it goes nowhere. And I think this probably was too much.
2: I would agree with that. I think it was kind of taking advantage of the internet culture and how it was parlaying into wrestling programming at the time, and maybe a little too heavy on the wink and a nod. But again, you're not even there for But
1: right now, I mean, watch what well, you look at what's going on now. Look what's going now, on in AEW. They're constantly taking inside shots and burying WWE and taking shots at specific talent that's all basically inside stuff because you know, it, I get it. And I think a little bit of that is fine if, if it's in context. If you're doing it just for the sake of doing it, to try to be cute or get yourself over, it generally will fall flat.
2: Yeah, and uh, he returns to the ring November 15th. He loses to Sid in a street fight, and then through the end of 99, the latest NWO incarnation is formed with the Outsiders Bret Hart and Jeff Jarrett, and that's more or less how Kevin Nash's 1999 comes to a close. Uh, WCW has gone through a lot of cash. It has gone through some pretty rough creative And it is a rough year all around. All right, Eric, let's close things out here with a couple questions as we look back on Kevin Nash's 1999. This one comes from Andy Goldsmith. He asked, did Hogan and Nash have problems with each other when Kevin Nash was booking? I think that's a really interesting question because we know how tight they are but when you get in the weeds of one of the friends is making all the booking decisions and we know Hogan has been very protective in the past of how he's presented. Did that cause any friction between them?
1: Not that I'm aware of. And and I, I, I don't think it did, you know, again, I can't speak for what was going on after I left in September, but prior to that, um, look, Kevin, Kevin and Hulk in the beginning, like when Hulk first turned, it was all, you know, roses, right? Everybody's getting along great, big momentum, big turn early on in the relationship. It wasn't until probably about four or six months later, there was some tension between Hulk and Nash, Um, but they worked it out. And by 99, no, there there was no, there were no issues that I was aware of.
2: Let's get this question from John here. This is a good question you would like to know if there is any particular idea that you recall that Kevin Nash suggested that you outright rejected and why, and on the contrary, was there an idea Kevin brought up that you immediately liked and used because it never dawned on you before?
1: Uh, no. And again, and the reason for that is because I was letting, you know, like here's the, th- here's the thing about me. And this is either a strength or a weakness, I guess, depending on one's perspective and experiences. But once I designate someone to do something, I let them do that. I'm a macro manager. I am not a micromanager. I don't hire someone, give them the responsibility, and then look over their shoulder and question what they do along the way. Absolutely not. That doesn't work in creative. There's, there's a certain point where if you're going to put someone in charge of your creative You have to let it go and you have to give it time because it's not like handing off a product, a tangible thing. You're handing off a process. You're handing off a perspective. You're handing off a tone and it takes a while. It's, I guess, I don't know anything about sports other than, you know, I like to watch it once in a while, but it's probably one of the reasons why when you hire a head, a new head coach and they come in with their Entirely new offensive system and personnel. You've got to give them time. Yep. And sometimes it takes two or three years in in professional football. Uh, the Cleveland Browns were a perfect example of. I you mean, know, they had more they had more general managers in the course of three years than some teams had in three decades. And as a result of that, they couldn't find the rhythm for a long time. And the same thing happens, I think, in creative. Is you've got to let if you're going to put someone in charge, let them do it, and if it doesn't work out, make a change. But it's inevitable that it won't work out if you give them that authority and that responsibility, and then nitpick it along the way. It doesn't work.
2: It's that terminology. Trust the process. That's what we always hear, and I, I'm with you on that. I, I agree. Uh, Michael asked. Eric, did Kevin want to do the booking on a long-term basis, or in his mind, was it always going to be short-term?
1: I And again, I don't know what Kevin's motivations were inside of his own head. I only know what our discussions were, and it was not going to be a permanent thing for Kevin. Maybe down the road, he would have liked to transition out of being a talent and into a creative position. That may have been the case. But with regard to this moment in time, it was temporary until we were able to figure out where the smoke, where the dust was going to settle on the merger and ultimately what impact that was going to have on WCW. And and I could get back into the creative and not be fighting off the wolves at my door every day.
2: Well, our last question comes from Dusty. He says Nash always seemed to walk a fine line between in character, tongue in cheek, smarm and seeming like he was making fun of angles, promos, moments that were supposed to be serious. Does Eric have a take on that particular style of performance?
1: You know, I I agree with that. Kevin had a unique, his presentation, the psychology of his character's presentation in in certain moments and situations was really different. And I understand exactly what, 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 what was being asked there. And I agree that Kevin did have that, he did walk that fine line a couple times, but it's also what made him unique. I think it's something that certain people can get away with. And and even sometimes those people that can get away with it because they're good at it, uh, can, can be guilty of overdoing it. But oftentimes Kevin's tongue-in-cheek, line-walking sense of humor worked pretty well. It's one of the things that gave the N.W.L. and Kevin Nash in particular that kind of cool edge. Yeah, talking about cool heels—that's one of the things that helped Kevin and Scott become kind of cool heels was that fine line his ability to walk that fine line and do some things in tongue and cheek and those who got it got it those who didn't didn't Um, but yeah it's it 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 could be a little tricky from time to time
2: tremendous swagger it made him cool calm and collected big daddy cool obviously the moniker I, i enjoy kevin nash a lot as a performer but in going back through this episode here, looking back at 1999, I I don't want to beat the dead horse here. It just really feels like Eric, a lot of this, there's not a whole lot of explanation for other than this is, I gave you
1: the explanation early on. The explanation was there was no vision. Yeah. There There was no leadership. Yeah. Not from me, not from my bosses. Um, That was the problem. It wasn't Kevin Nash. Kevin Nash did the best Kevin Nash could do under the circumstances. And again, those circumstances aren't well known. Those circumstances only existed with the people that had to live with them every day. Um, Kevin Nash is one of a small handful of people that I know I could trust. He's, and again, maybe it just goes back to the way and the way we both grew up and where we both grew up and the culture that we grew up in. Kevin, I, I love Kevin Nash. He's, do we, <laughs> there were oftentimes we didn't agree. I mean, Kevin has told stories about times when he and I would just, we're going at it. And I've, I probably saw my life pass before my eyes on more than one occasion. <laughs> Those things got so heated. And then a couple hours later, the next day or the following week, we'd sit down, have dinner and a beer and we were over it. Yeah. Because of the motivation and because of the trust that we had for each other. Even when we disagreed and even when we were both being stubborn, I knew what Kevin's motivation was. And it was not because he was trying to undermine me or anything like that. It was because he felt strongly about his position and he was working hard to defend it. And I felt the same way, but it never got personal. At the end of it, we were always friends. We were just looking for the best answer to a given situation.
2: And I think it says a lot about your trust in him at the time that you were willing to say, yeah, I'm I'm comfortable letting you have this responsibility.
1: And I, and, and you're right. But how many people, I didn't know anybody else that would say, Hey, Eric, mm-hmm. I, I'm. I know I can tell you've been beat up by this, you know, propeller it's been chopping you up like hamburger for the last couple of months. How about I walk into that propeller instead? I mean, how it's many people, would do, how many people, and by the way, for no more money, how many people would do
2: that? I don't know anybody. I was going to ask you about that. So he didn't get a raise for any of it. I don't think
1: so. I may have done it afterward. I don't know. I, I, I don't want to say I absolutely didn't do it because honestly, I don't remember. I don't think I did again, because it was designed to be temporary, but Kevin, Kevin may recall that differently than I do. Gotcha.
2: Well, again, he's got the click this podcast debuting this month, which everyone's got to check out. It's going to be fantastic. He and Sean Oliver coming to podcast heat where there's really a great team of podcasts being built as well. And next week, Eric, get ready, buddy. You were complaining at the start of this episode that we were jumping all around while we're going back to 1997. Thank God. I feel
1: so much happier there. (laughs) So much
2: more comfortable. It's one of your favorite angles. It's Bash at the Beach 1997. We've waited four years to discuss this show here on 83 Weeks. The epic showdown between Dennis Rodman and Hollywood Hogan taking on Lex Luger and the Giant. Roddy Piper squaring off with Ric Flair. Kurt Henning debuts. Teams with DDP squaring off with Scott Hall and Randy Savage. Jeff Jarrett versus Steve McMichael for the U.S. Championship. Chris Benoit, Kevin Sullivan in a retirement match. That is a hell of a show. Uh, What can we look forward to with that one?
1: record setting trend setting entertainment that allowed us to be the number one wrestling company in the entire world to put Vince McMahon on his knees. That's what you can expect. And I'm going to bask in the fucking glory of every moment of next week's show to make up for the miserable fucking time I've had to deal with going back to 1999. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, I'm very fortunate because we have a great time every single week on adfreeshows.com. You and I co-host the Strictly Business podcast, where we get a little bit of a different side of you, Eric. And as you say, you live to enlighten on yes, Strictly indeed. Business. What can fans check out over on adfreeshows.com with that show?
1: Um, A different perspective. You know, if you, if you want to read the, the bullshit narrative of guys like Deb, Dave Meltzer and, and the Brian Alvarez is the world and those scumbags. I mean, feel free. Like I said, it's a free country. Feel free to be stupid. But if you really want to learn about the industry, the business of the wrestling business, check out strictly business. And it's not just my opinion. We bring on great guests. We've had a great lineup of guests the last several weeks um, from sportscasters. Sean Pendergast. Uh, we had uh, Dr. Carolyn Reinhardt, who's a psychologist. A, she's the chair of Arts and Sciences at Dominican University, uh, talking about why people watch wrestling. We've had so many good guests. We've talked in depth about streaming with people who are involved in that industry and its impact and potential and future in professional wrestling. And we'll continue to bring you some of the greatest perspectives this industry has ever heard when it comes to the business of the wrestling business. And let's face it, boys and girls, no matter what form of entertainment you enjoy, it's always about the business of the business. How's that?
2: That is a hell of a way to send us off here. Eric, I am so grateful I had the opportunity to chat with you on 83 Weeks here, even if you like to nudge me a little bit. I love chatting with you every single time. we get. It's all
1: in good fun. I love love you, John. It's all in good fun.
2: I appreciate you, brother, and I would look forward to yelling you on Strictly Business this week on (laughs) AdFreeShows.com. A happy 4th of July to everyone who celebrates. Eat up. Get that rec tech going. And Eric, I know you're looking forward to that parade, so I'm going to send you off, my friend. We'll see you next week here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.
1: John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together,